Hello and welcome to Melee's Turnwheel, the series that takes a retroactive look at the Fire Emblem series chapter by chapter. I'm your host, I'm Main Melee Kirby, and today we're taking it back to chapters 4, 4X, 5, and 6 of Fire Emblem Thracia 776. I'm very excited for these chapters because Manster is an incredibly fun uh, <laughs> segment of the game to talk about for various reasons. Uh, so I'm very much looking forward to that. But before we do anything else, I want to go over the responses to last episode's question that you guys left over on Twitter. Thank you very much for anyone who went over and answered that question. It means a lot to have engagement with the show. Sometimes it can definitely feel like I'm talking to dead air. So seeing your guys' responses means a lot. So I got about 10 to a dozen responses. And I'm just going to go over the ones that I thought were most interesting. At Biozilla said, of the games I've played so far, I think the original Gaiden would have to take the cake. Having environmental elements like trees more spread out makes for unfun map design. Also, enemy units dodged my attacks at an abnormally high frequency, at least during my playthrough. That being said, I respect the game for its excellent soundtrack and experimental mechanics. So, uh, first of all, Biozilla, uh, I just want to give a shout out to because they they have been a frequent uh, listener and have written in a few times with their thoughts and, and comments and feedback, and I am very appreciative of that, um, to have someone, at least one person, who uh, engages with the show on that level. It means a lot. So thank you, Biozilla. In response to what you had to say about Gaiden, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I'm, I meme on this game a lot. Thracia, I mean. And I say that it's a bad game and that I don't like it and everything like that. And it is one of my least favorite games in the series. But Gaiden... If you want me to give you a 100% genuine answer free of any irony, my least favorite game is definitely Gaiden. There's just, I mean, basically you hit the nail on the head here. It's just the maps are bad. <laughs> um, is really what it boils down to. The old NES UI is difficult to um, to really get a grip on right now in 2021. It's hard to go back to games from that era, especially like RPGs with heavy menuing and things like that. Shadow Dragon and the Blade of Light is also down there for me for that exact same reason. But at least at least that game has good maps, whereas Gaiden certainly does not. The thing you say about attacks being dodged at an abnormally high frequency, that actually touches on a mechanic that I haven't gotten into yet because it hasn't been introduced yet. It's kind of hard to explain because most people are going to experience Fire Emblem with the 2RN system and then go back and play the games with 1RN. But as it's as we are playing through the games, we are starting with 1RN and moving into 2RN. So I'll talk more about that when we get to FE6, where 2RN is introduced. I'm assuming you know what 2RN is, but basically it's just the idea that like modern Fire Emblem basically lies to you and, ma and makes your hit rates look a lot better than they actually are. Or the other way around, you, it, they make your hit rates look worse than they actually are. So you hit more frequently and it tricks your brain into thinking that like 90% is, you know, basically a guarantee. And then when you go and play again, like Gaiden or again, like Thracia and you miss 90%, 10% of the time, it feels weird because it's like, no, this isn't how it's supposed to be. Um, again, more, I'll get into more depth about that in a later episode, but that's what that is a result of in case you didn't already know. At Admiral Spike said, probably awakening as of now, I find it extremely boring to play when playing well and extremely disengaging to play with restrictions like no pair up or on lunatic. 
and the story has deteriorated over the years as I've been exposed to more and more, more and better writing, even within Fire Emblem alone. Awakening is definitely down there for me as well, for exactly the same reasons that you've described. It's extremely easy to cheese and to break and to, you know, abuse all the mechanics in. And then when you try to impose restrictions, it becomes clear that it was not designed with those in mind. It absolutely wants you to use pair up and lunatic. I mean, I lunatic, maybe lunatic plus almost certainly not, uh, was not play tested. It's, it's really clear to see that no one in their right mind would have sat down and played through all of awakening lunatic plus and thought, yes, this is fine. This is good. There's nothing here that we need to change. Uh, it's just, it's crazy. And then, and then even lunatic is just like hard to the point of being like unfair and just like forcing you to abuse Frederick and Robin. So awakening is absolutely a dumpster fire of a game and we'll get there. There are some things that I like about it that stop it from being like in my, you know, the bottom three or bottom five or whatever, but it's, it's not good. It's not a good game. At super user person four, I'm pretty sure you're supposed to read that like super user person, but <laughs> I calls them like I sees them. Uh, first of all, they posted a meme from, I believe, Arrested Development. Uh, it's a meme format you've probably seen where it's the woman saying, I love all my children equally. And then they say, I don't much care for her, and then whatever the name of the kid is. Um, but basically, the long and short of it is that they said uh, Radiant Dawn is their least favorite because uh, it's... To use their words, uh, Radiant Dawn is a bit too bloated for my taste. Generally, I like Fire Emblem as a quick and pick up pl- uh, pick up and play one map for about an hour or so. Radiant Dawn's long narrative and huge maps are just not conducive to that. One hundred percent. I like Radiant Dawn, uh, but it's it's even I can't like sit down and play through all of Radiant Dawn like quickly. It's just like it takes a lot out of me. It's a it's a very stamina intensive game, uh, and as much as I love it, it's gonna turn a lot of people off in in a in a completely reasonable and understandable way. And then finally, at lack of interest, says Shadow Dragon was the first game I tried as a kid, and I hated it so much that I didn't touch the series again for five years. I've tried to beat it maybe four times since then, and every time I stall out around chapter six. I don't know what, but something about that game crushes my spirit. Shadow Dragon is a very popular pick. If you ask, like, the average Joe on the street what their least favorite Fire Emblem game is, especially, like, not people who have played every game, you know, like, maybe people who have only played the the localized games or people who have played everything um, past DS and later, you know, like, going into Awakening, the casual fans, um, as loaded as that term has become, I think it's still applicable for a lot of people. It's not an insult. It just means you aren't as into the series as, as some pe- some other people might be. I think Shadow Dragon is like one of the most popular picks for the worst game in the series because of its um, drab, kind of boring visual style. The writing is a little bit dry at times, although I personally think that there are some really funny moments in there. And then just a lot of the mechanics are weird. And it, it, uh, it's it's not one that a lot of people enjoy going back and replaying, I think. This is maybe the most mad I've ever been at something as trivial as, like, Fire Emblem discourse. You know, it's it's a stupid thing to be be angry about, but I I was, like, fuming at this. Chunka Conroy posted, this was, like, a while ago, it was months ago now, 
uh, posted something about the Fire Emblem 1 re-release on Switch. And he was basically like, I don't understand why we need this because Shadow Dragon exists. Um, and he doesn't play Fire Emblem. So he, at least I don't think so. Not not a lot, at least. So he was more like curious about like what the rationale might be. And there was a significant number of people <laughs> that went into that Twitter thread and said unironically that Shadow Dragon, the remake, is worse than the original game. And uh, I don't know about that one. I <laughs> like I just I don't I don't know how you can play a I, I, that's the thing, right? I don't think that maybe a few people, but I'm willing to bet that almost no one who actually said that has played both games um, because it's fine to not like Shadow Dragon. It has a lot of flaws and a lot of issues. But to say it's worse than this janky, menu-heavy RPG, like NES RPG from 1990 is... Ah, that's what you think. That's fine. Everyone's entitled to their own opinion. I just cannot take that seriously and like not just assume that the people who say that haven't played the original NES game. Because it's not it's not that good. <laughs> it's really not that good of a game, guys. And I know that Shadow Dragon isn't spectacular either in a lot of people's opinions, but that's like night and day. You know? It's like it's like saying um red and blue is worse than fire red and leaf green. Uh both games have problems. Both games overlap in a lot of their problems. Uh and it's absolutely fine to have the opinion that red and blue are better than fire red and leaf green if you've like sat down and played both games. And are like honest about like where that comes from, whether it's nostalgia or whether it's an actual like critique of of the game. But in in most ways, and I think to most people, the remakes are just objectively better. And I think that the same kind of applies here. Shadow Dragon is not always a ten out of ten game, but it's not hard to play <laughs> for most people in the same way that I think the original FU one would be. But that's enough of a tangent. Uh, lack of interest, I completely agree with, uh, well, you didn't really give it any opinion on, on the gameplay or anything like that, but I can completely understand where your disdain for Shadow Dragon comes from. It's, uh, it can be rough sometimes. It's, it's not always my favorite either. It's, it's up there for me, I think, but it, it has a lot of problems for sure. There were a few other, like one word or one, like this is basically people saying the name of the game. And a few of these were interesting, and I wish that the people had elaborated, so I had, like, you know, I could I could respond to some of their thoughts and opinions. But someone said Sacred Stones, which I thought was at, at Armed Blue Gunvolt, said Sacred Stones, which is, I haven't met anyone who has even, like, a, posi a strong positive opinion on Sacred Stones, let alone a strong negative opinion. It's just, it seems like such a middle-of-the-road game. That I'm interested in in what their rationale was, but well, you know, I also see some some shadows of Lentia, some guidance, some birthrights. Someone said Fe6. A couple of people actually said Fe6, which is also interesting to me. I don't know what their rationale there is, but anyway, doesn't matter. Thank you to everyone who listened and responded to that question. For next episode, the question that I want you guys to answer is: What is your favorite? map objective in Fire Emblem. See, there's a lot of different objectives and ways to clear maps, especially later on in the series. You have, uh, obviously, Seas and Route are like the two big ones, but then there's also Kill Boss, there's Escape, 
there's survive or defend, whatever you want to call it. There's arrive. There's that one map in FE7 that has like three seize points. You have to do all of them. And there's probably even more that I'm not thinking of off the top of my head. So I'm curious what you guys have to say about that. So let me know over on Twitter. I'll post the question and you guys can uh, give me your thoughts on that. Okay, so with all of that out of the way, we can finally get into our chapters for the episode, starting with chapter four, Imprisoned. The next five chapters, chapter four through chapter seven, and then four X's in there, so the math works out, is known colloquially as the Manster Arc of Fire Emblem Thracia 776. Called that for the obvious fact that you are in Manster, but there's a few things that set the maps apart and make them a little bit distinct from other maps that we've seen before and after. First of all, all of them are escape maps which is a, a new clear condition that we're seeing for the first time in this game, and I'll explain more about that in a little bit. But also, we are more or less entirely separated from our previous group. None of the characters that we had before are available to us now, with a few exceptions. We get Lithis back immediately. In Chapter 5, we can briefly use Avel, and then in Chapter 7, we are given... Uh, Finn and Safi, but that's next episode. We're not doing chapter 7 in this one. I could have just done all of Manster, but I think that there's a, a clear distinction in my mind, like personally, between the first four Manster maps and chapter 7, in that the first four maps are really bad and suck ass, and then chapter 7 is like fine. So I kind of wanted to lump all of these ones together and save chapter 7 for next week. Um or next episode. God fucking damn it. I'm not doing this weekly anymore. I don't know why I keep saying that. Now, I've kind of just like whipped my dick out and slammed it on the table right there when I say that all of these maps are bad. And that's like obviously very opinionated and up for interpretation. There's a lot to like in these maps. Mm, I <laughs> I guess <laughs> I I and I know some people who like these maps, especially chapter 6, I think is good on paper, or actually, I think it's bad in on paper, but like good when you actually sit down and play it. It's kind of it's kind of weird. I'll explain it when I get there. Um, so I just kind of wanted to get that out there in the air, so that you kind of know where my mind is at with these maps. There's not going to be any like build up to like you know I'm going to go through all of them and be like, and all of them are bad because I can't like hold my opinion on them <laughs> back for that long. But um. In particular, though, Chapter 4 and Chapter 4X are, like, like upper echelon bad, and Chapter 4 may possibly be, I'm really trying to think, I think it's at the very least bottom five maps in the entire series for me, and then if not, the absolute worst, because it's just, I, I just hate it, and I'm going to stop beating around the bush and start explaining what it is about this map that I don't like. So to set the scene a little bit, at the end of last chapter, Leaf was captured by Raedric, so were Avil and Lithus, and then everyone else managed to get away. Leaf was taken into Manster. Now the game does a thing here that I don't like, um, and that happens a little bit 
too frequently for my liking in this series. Not all the time, but a little bit too frequently. Where it doesn't leave stuff to subtext. It kind of just tells you how to feel and it tells you about like what you know what this story is trying to go for more or less without you having the chance to figure it out for yourself. A prime example of this is right here where the game points out the fact that it's ironic that Leaf is being taken into Manster because this was his home at one point. Um, before he was in hiding, Leaf was the heir to Leinster, which is the ruling territory in the country that is called the Manster District as of right now, or the Munster District. I'm not calling it Munster. It's, it, I'm going to be referring to it as Manster. In more recent translations, it's been, it's been called Munster, but I just don't, it's not doing it for me. So Manster is what I'm going to stick with. Uh, the Manster District is, you know, Leinster is the ruling territory. But in, in kind of a way that I would I would compare to Albany being the capital of New York, whereas New York City is like the big important city in New York. It's kind of like a comparable situation here where Leinster is technically the ruling territory and the one in charge. But Manster is kind of where most of the hubbub and where like a lot of the power and influence is, you know, gravitated towards in the Manster District, hence the name Manster District. It's not called the Leinster District. You get what I'm trying to say? So this is essentially the most influential city in the country that Leaf is the rightful heir to. And he's being held prisoner there. And that's ironic, you know? It's, you know, it's like rain on your wedding day. And it's, you know, like a free ride when you've already paid. It's that's, you know, that's cool. You know, it's it's a cool idea. I just wish that the game <laughs> had the confidence in its audience to like let them work that out for themselves. It's it's not even like something you have to work out. It's kind of just something that I think is going to click in most people's minds. But for some reason, the game decides that it's really important that you understand that it's a little ironic, don't you think? Because it explicitly points it out in the introductory narration. But that's small potatoes. I'm not <laughs> I'm not going to pick a fight. I'm going to shit on a lot of things. In this chapter, that is not the hill I'm going to die on. It's not that big of a deal. Now, if you remember from FE4, the family in charge of Leinster, or the Manster District as a whole, I should say, is House Frege, which is uh, the the house of Tiltu, Tinny, uh, etc., etc., Reptor. And the current ruling head of House Frege is Bloom, who we fought and killed in FE4. This is this takes place before the start of FE4, by the way, so Bloom is alive. I think we actually see him at the end of this chapter. But House Frege is in charge, but the basically at the end of FE4 Gen 1, when the Empire was first invading Leinster, there was a general in Connaught, which is one of the cities nearby, that betrayed the Manster District and let the Empire, you know, take over more easily. And he was given a promotion to basically be the governor of Manster. And while he's technically, you know, subservient to House Frege, he's more or less the ruler of Manster in terms of like he he is the one in charge of all the day-to-day goings-on. And that general was Raedric, who is... I haven't talked much about Raedric because we've only seen him a couple times, but Raedric is more or less the main villain of the game. Technically, he's not like the big bad at the end, but I would say he's more of a consistent and 
present villain throughout the story than the actual big bad, um, which is another entirely separate issue. But Raedric is basically the main villain. And he's a pretty good one, I think. And we'll see more about him later. But right now, he's kind of just like an asshole. Um, I think he's he's more like um, like Darin from Fe Seven, uh, Valter from Fe, not Valter. What's a better example? I guess like Halleck from Fe Eight. Um, you know that like he he fits more into the archetypical side villain of just kind of being like the asshole who you take down on your way to the more threatening villain. Um, but he's the main villain. You know, he's not he's not a side a side jobber in this one. Which is an interesting change of pace. Again, he kind of is, but like the other the other villain who is is really more of the big bad is much less frequently around. So I think Radric fits the bill a lot better for like the main villain of the game. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's not anything to write home about, but you know, in terms of like his character, his backstory or anything like that. He's just a fun asshole who is, you know, we want to see him, you know, we want, we want to see Leaf beat him and and take back Manster from under his influence. So it's pretty cool. He's, he's an all right villain. We cut to the prison where Leaf is being held captive. We see Radric talking to an armor knight here who is Dawson, but we don't know that yet. Maybe they say his name, but we don't know like his significance yet. And he basically tells Dawson to make sure that Leaf does not uh, escape and takes Avel to go see Nana and Marita. He tells her that he will take her to see uh, Nana and Marita, that they are unharmed, and that, you know, he'll he'll lead Avel to them. And Avel agrees. She's a little bit wary uh, at first, but I think she's just, you know, she really wants to make sure that Nana and especially her own daughter Marita are safe and sound. So she agrees to go along with him, leaving Leaf and Liphus behind uh, in their own cells. At this point, we see a couple of new faces come into the, the prison from the right staircase. They're being led by Sed, who is a returning character from FE4. And we don't know what they're doing here yet, but all Sed says is that uh, he's going to take another character by the name of Asvel. And they're going to go and free the children in a different area. And he leaves his uh, his followers behind to save the people who are locked up in this section of the prison. They leave, said in Asvel. And the remaining characters bicker, not bicker, but they have some, some pre-fight banter a little bit. They do something of a stealing tutorial. I've already explained how stealing works. Uh, but the game decides that this is the time where it wants to explain to you how stealing works. One of the characters who is his, is here is a thief, and they say something about her being able to steal the weapons right out of the guard's hands, and she quips back, you know, only if they're light enough, I can't steal them if they're too heavy, something like that. It's a nice soft tutorial, but the only reason why I made note of it and thought it was weird is because uh, there is not a single weapon in this map, or really, I think maybe any map, <laughs> that uh, this thief can steal because it's like they're all too heavy. Her base con is like three or four, I think. And the lightest weapon in the game, I'm pretty sure, is an iron sword at six weight. Maybe like some of the healing staff, maybe like heal staff is three weight or something like that. But yeah, the only thing she's going to be stealing is vulneraries, um, which is fine. You know, stealing vulneraries is nice. I just don't know why they decided to 
make her the poster child for like, yeah, she can steal weapons because she can't. She can't steal any weapons. Lifus would have made much more sense to have as like the person to talk about that. But, you know, whatever. So we're given control over all of our characters. We actually see there's like a bunch of them. We have Leaf and Lifus down at the bottom, locked up in cells. We can't do anything with them yet. Leaf is accompanied by a couple of other characters who I'll talk about in a minute. So really the only characters who we're able to maneuver around and do things with are these three followers of said who I'm going to go over right now. The first of them is Macha. She is a female Myrmidon with everything that that implies. Low strength, high speed, kind of a glass cannon type. Uh, I mean, it's not really a glass cannon if she can barely do damage. Um, but she's, uh, you know, she's she's just the typical femmerm archetype. She has Vantage, which is kind of nice, I guess, and a Pursuit Critical of, I think, three. So she's going to crit a fair bit. I actually completely forgot to mention this. I'm recording this uh, post, like, while in editing. And I completely forgot to mention while talking about Bacha that she promotes to Hero, which is, you know, makes her one of the only characters in the entire series to do that. Pre-3DS, there's only three, I think, in the entire series. And they're all right in a row. It's Radney one of the substitutes from FE4, then Macha, and then in FE6, we get the pre-promoted female hero, Echidna. And after that, it's a complete dry spell until you get, like, Selena and Severa in the 3DS games. So, just a fun fact. Doesn't really have any impact on how good she is. She does get access to, like, hand axes and stuff when she promotes, so that's something. But, for the most part, it's not really going to make much of a difference. But in terms of gameplay, she's really nothing special. She's just uh, kind of, she's she's all right. You know, if you want to use a quick light on her feet swordsman or sword fighter, then you're going to get better options later. You're going to get like, you're going to get like Shiva later. You're going to get, I don't know, uh, who else? Uh, uh, I guess Ralph, if you're willing to wait a little while. So there's uh, Marita is another one. So you got yourself some options. Shanam, of course, the ultimate swordmaster in the series. But she's alright. Nothing special, but certainly not bad. Accompanying her is Brighton, who is an axe knight. A mounted unit, um, but unfortunately because he is given to us indoors, and we're going to be indoors for the next few maps, uh, we don't get to see him on his horse for quite some time. Instead, he is dismounted and forced to use swords. But he does have a D rank in swords, so he's not using like shitty iron swords or whatever. He's at least able to use steel swords. That's kind of nice. He has wrath, which is great because it means he can reliably kill things, which is going to be as you as we're going to find pretty difficult in in this series of chapters. So if you let him get attacked on enemy phase, unless he, uh, I mean, we'll talk about stat variants in a second, but it's possible that there are some enemies that he won't kill. But for the most part, uh, he, he's, he should kill everything with a steel sword crit. And then most things, I'd say about like 50% of the time, uh, he's going to kill with an iron sword crit. So he's a pretty good enemy phase unit. Uh, he's, he's got really high HP, but then everything else sucks ass. His strength is terrible. His defense is pretty bad. His speed is garbage. Uh, he obviously is really vulnerable to magic like most axe-wielding characters are. So... And that, like, his actual stats aren't particularly good. In fact, they're some of the worst that we're seeing up to this point. So keep that in mind. Uh, he's not excellent. Although part of that is that um, I actually forgot about this until quite recently. 
characters who are on horseback will get a stat penalty when they are dismounted. So these stats are lower than what we can expect of him uh, outdoors, but because we're going to be using him for the most part indoors uh, for the next few maps, then those these are really the stats that are, that are going to matter. So it, it is certainly not giving Brighton enough credit to say that these stats are like as good as he's ever going to be, because even if he doesn't get a single level up, he will be better once you get him outside and mount him. That sounded weird. But once you get him outside and he is able to uh, get back onto his horse, he will be significantly better. But for right now, we do have to deal with these terrible, terrible base stats. But Wrath is really nice. So he's probably, other than Leaf, the best character in Manster, I would say. Uh, well, no, that's not true. I don't know what I'm talking about. There's like three or four better characters in Manster. Uh, but we'll we'll get there. And then finally, the... Last character we have to talk about right now is Lara. Lara is the thief I was mentioning earlier. Lara is kind of an interesting boat because she is one of the only characters, I think, ever in the entire series that changes class lines. I mean, obviously, in later games, you have reclassing. But outside of that, in a later chapter, in a mid-game chapter, she can become a dancer, a thief dancer, basically. Um, I think she can still steal and she can still pick locks, but she also can dance. And being a dancer is incredibly good, as we talked about in FE4, and as I'm going to talk about in every subsequent game, uh, except, I guess, FE11 doesn't have a dancer. But being a dancer is super, super, super good. So as a thief, she's pretty bad. Um, she can steal vulneraries and like other items that aren't, you know, they don't have a weight attached to them. And also, she can open doors and open chests and stuff like that. So she's good for that kind of utility. But at Lifus and later we get Parn, both of them are much better at stealing because they have, like, respectable constats, or at least Parn does. Lifus is still pretty bad, but serviceable, I guess. And then they can also engage in some combat, not to say that you're going to want to make them into combat juggernauts or anything like that, but it's nice to know that they're not going to die to a stiff breeze if you accidentally leave them in someone's range. And in a pinch, it is nice to know that they can help out in combat if you need them to. And then on top of that, they can do everything else that Lara does. So having a second thief, certainly almost never a bad thing. And then by the time we get Parn, she will be a dancer. And so her niche is she's always going to have a niche, basically, either as the second thief or as the dancer. And so that's respectable, I guess. I just don't think that she's anything special right now. Uh, pretty much everything that we want her to do, Lifus could also do. But we might need both of them. So certainly not a bad role to fill on the team. And then it's important to, since I've, I've gone over all three of these guys, I do want to put a caveat in to this explanation of all of them by saying that for the next several chapters, these guys are going to be some of the best that we have access to. And that's part of what makes Manster so interesting and why I think so many people like it is that it forces you to really take advantage of your limited resources in a way that is almost never, ever asked of you in any other Fire Emblem game. The closest I can compare this to off the top of my head is the sections of Radiant Dawn, where you are asked to uh, engage in really hard defense maps like 313 or 3, um, 3.7, I think is what it is, 
where you have like terrible, terrible units and you have to make them, you know, put them up against pretty strong enemies. And in those situations, you are given, you know, resources, you have strong weapons, like the, the personal weapons that like uh, Nolan, Edward and Leonardo get. You have yellow units that you can use. Some of them, some of those maps also give you, I guess, shit, I'll have to cut that out because that was a spoiler. But there's a certain character that you get in some of those maps that make them a lot easier. And I actually really like those maps. So I would, I want to like Manster as well. I like the idea that it's going for of like, you're given a group of very mediocre units and not a lot of resources and you have to make it work for like four maps. Um, and I think that if that was all it was and the maps were like solid otherwise, I would, I would write, I would be talking about this section right now as one of my favorite maps in the series, but there's a lot of stuff in this map. And then also the next one that I just don't vibe with very much. So it, it kind of rubs me the wrong way, but I do appreciate what they were going for here and where I was going with this originally that I kind of deviated away from is that, you know, I say that like Brighton's bad, Machi is nothing to write home about. Lara doesn't really have a niche. With all of that, it's important to remember that right now they're all we got. So we got them. We they're going to be incredibly valuable because we really just don't have very many other options. So for the next few maps, just take everything that I said, forget about it, throw it all in the garbage. They're all incredible right now because that's what we got to work with. So there's a few different objectives in this map, and you can kind of tackle them in any order you want. Although there's kind of an order that's going to be better i think for most people the first objective is to obviously free lithus and leaf from jail and we'll talk about that in just a moment the second objective is you'll notice that there are a bunch of chests that are scattered around the the square rectangular uh center chamber of the uh of the map all of those chests contain the items that leaf and lithus had on them when they went into Manster. So Leaf's Light Brand or Lifus's Lockpick, stuff like that. I think I also had Lifus bring a Steel Sword or something like that. So at some point, you want to go around and get all of those items. There's also a Javelin and a Rapier and a Vulnerary, I think, are always there no matter what, even if you didn't bring anything into Manster. So at some point, we want to pick all of those items up. And then the third objective is that on the upper side, kind of opposite of where Leaf and Lithus are located, are two cells with green NPCs that we want to have escape to the staircases on the left and the right. We need to have all, I think, six or eight of them escape to uh, unlock Chapter 4X, which is incredibly important for reasons that we will talk about when we get to Chapter 4X. But for right now, just know that Technically optional, but you 100% want to free those guys. So you can tackle this in whatever order you choose to. Um, I think most people are going to make a beeline for Leaf and Lifus. Although personally, uh, I actually find that freeing the right group of prisoners, the top right group of prisoners first, can also be pretty effective because Leaf and Lifus are like safe and secure in their little in their little um, chambers. They're not going to get attacked by enemies while they're in there so you don't have to like save them or anything like that and very soon we're going to start to get overwhelmed by enemies so being able to get some of those guys out early is also kind of nice um but it's kind of like whatever you want to do do things at your own pace 
and you know eventually um, you'll be able to get Liffus and Leaf out. While the three guys are running around doing their thing, we see some cutscenes. One of them is Liffus talking. He is the only playable character in his cell, but he is accompanied by a few green NPCs of his own, uh, some bandits. And Liffus basically convinces them to join up with him and says that he's going to get busted out any day now because he thinks that his pirate crew is going to come save him. He's pretty much talking big. Like, I don't think he actually think that, thinks that's going to happen. But he wants these guys on his side because, you know, I mean, being in prison as, and, like, being at the, the bottom of the pecking order in prison is certainly not where you want to be, especially in medieval medieval Europe society where there's no, like, laws or restrictions on that sort of thing. It happens a lot in our modern world anyway, just kind of like abuse from guards and other prisoners, where there are, at least theoretically, systems in place to prevent that. So I can't even imagine what it would be like in a situation like this. Anyway, uh, Liffis quickly tries to make some allies out of these guys and says that his bandit crew is going to come uh, bust them out any day now. And they are, you know, they fall for it, for it, hook, line, and sinker, and just go along with it. And then, of course, when Lara eventually comes and unlocks his cell, they're like, whoa, you were telling the truth. That's crazy. Let's get out of here. And Lefis is like, Jesus Christ, that actually worked. <laughs> what the fuck? Um, so that's really funny. The other cutscene we see is Leaf making friends with the other prisoners in his cell, uh, Fergus and Kareen. Fergus is a... Uh, he was arrested for fighting some soldiers who were, like, accosting a young woman. And he, uh, you know, he stepped in to defend her, beat up some guards, or beat up some some soldiers or whatever, and he has, he was arrested for it. I think Karin was just, like, nearby when this was happening, and they assumed that they were together, so she got arrested as well. Leaf spends a lot of time talking with these guys. Fergus just gets a chance to show off his personality, but I'll talk more about that soon. The only relevant information right now, though, comes from Leaf talking with Karin. Karin says that she is looking for Prince Said of Salis. I don't know how much of this information we get this chapter and how much we get next chapter, but I'm just going to say it all right now. Uh, basically, in in this universe, in this like series of events, this is something I talked about in FE4. Canonically, Said is the son of Lewin um, and Aaron. I mean, he's always the son of Aaron, but in this in this game, he's also the son of Lewin, canonically the prince of Salis. And Aaron, at this point, has fallen ill and died, and Lewin is still nowhere to be found. I guess he's still chilling in Granville or Isaac or wherever the fuck he is. But that leaves basically Fee as the ruler of Salis, and she's still pretty young. So Karin decided that she was going to uh, find Sed and bring him home to take some of this burden off of Fee's shoulders. I guess they're like friends. This is obviously echoing what happened with Lewin in Gen 1, and I have, I'm have i going to have a lot to say about this next chapter because I think some of the parallels here are really interesting, but for right now, just suffice it to say that Aaron, or sorry, um, Karin is the, actually I need to realize that their names are even similar. Karin is the stand-in here for Aaron. The Prince of Salis has run away, and is kind of doing his own thing. The loyal knight 
uh, with a close connection to the royal family, comes and searches for him. And there's even a hint of a bit of a romantic connection between them next chapter. So very much kind of, you know, it's like poetry, sort of they rhyme. Uh, each stanza kind of leads into the next. Um, hopefully it'll work. But Karin uh, says that she's looking for Sed and, you know, basically just wants him to come home. That's the gist of it. There's, I don't know how to describe this. I think it might just be flavor, but to be generous, I'll describe it as a soft tutorial on dismounting um, or like a soft explanation of like what's going on with some of the characters who should be mounted. Karin says that her Pegasus is like outside looking for her, which is weird to me. I don't know why <laughs> I, I'm thinking about this too much, but I think it's there to, to explain like, yes, Karin is a Pegasus knight and she will be able to mount, but only after they get outside. Oh, and then we also see a third cutscene just between the NPCs in the upper cells, and they just talk about the Magi. The Magi is the group that said, I don't think this is explicitly mentioned until later, or maybe it's not at all, but basically the group that said is in charge of is the Magi. Uh, we heard about them last chapter, and they are just some freedom fighters who are, you know, resistance fighters uh, going against the Empire from within Manster, and... The people here seem to think that they really have a shot at taking down the Empire's hold of Manster. So clearly whatever they're doing is inspiring a lot of faith in the citizenry. So we just get a little bit more of a detailed explanation about that. After Lara opens up Leaf Cell, we get another cutscene where the details of the escape uh, wind condition are explained. Basically, the map is laid out in a square with a hallway leading well the hallway leading in all four directions the left right and bottom hallways just lead into like dead ends that the prisoners can escape from but you can't really do anything with and then the northern hallway leads to a locked door which when opened will uh reveal the escape point and fergus explains that they are going to uh, escape through that hallway the previous translations of thracia or i guess the previous translation uh, had a bit of an infamous line here where Leaf says something to the effect of the wording is important here. I'm pretty sure what he says is when I escape, everyone else does. Um, in response to Fergus basically saying, you know, you can leave me behind if you want, you know, just go on and I'll I'll back you up. And Leaf basically says, no, when I escape, everyone else does. Now, what he is meant to be communicating there is that uh, Leaf wants to be the last person to escape. After he escapes, um, the map will end and anyone who is left behind will be left behind. And you won't be able to use them anymore for quite a while. I'll explain more about that in a minute. But obviously, if you don't know that mechanic, hearing Leaf say, when I escape, everyone else does, in context, you can kind of get what it's trying to say. But for most people who see that, I can imagine that they would think, okay, what this means is that when Leaf escapes, everyone else just escapes automatically, especially if you have played other games, because in other games, that's exactly how it works. You know, if you escape in, in FE9 with Ike, everyone else escapes as well, and the map just ends, and you don't have to suffer any consequences of that. In this game, no, that's not how it works. If Leaf is the first person to escape, he is the only person to escape. So make sure that everyone else gets out before Leaf does. And uh, they fixed that line in the newer translation, by the way. I just feel like I should make that clear. 
Now, at this time, we are given, I mean, we've had control over them the whole time, but now we can start moving around with uh, Leaf and then also Fergus and Karin. Um, Karin. In their conversation, basically, they agreed to go with Leaf. Uh, Fergus, I don't remember what his reason is, but Karin basically says, you know, if I go with you, there's a higher chance that I'll run into Set at some point. So they agree to stick together for now. Um, so let's go over them real quick. Fergus is a great character. One of my favorites so far. He's a very, uh, chill, laid-back sort of guy, to the point of being a little nihilistic, it seems like. I'm not sure if I'm using that word right. Nihilism is kind of a, a difficult concept to, like, wrap your head around, uh, so I, I might be using the shorthand incorrectly there, but basically, uh, he doesn't care about, like, anything, including his own safety and well-being. Like, he's locked up and presumably going to be, I don't know if he's going to be executed or at the very least, you know, probably going to be in there for a while. And he just doesn't seem to care. He's talking about, like, catching some Zs. He wants to take a nap. He tells Leaf and Karen to shut the fuck up so he can sleep. Um, and then a guard comes over and also tells him to shut the fuck up. And Fergus is like, yeah, you know, this guy, <laughs> this guy gets me. Um, you know, he's funny. Uh, this kind of archetype is a little bit stale. Uh, for my liking, I think it's it's really, um, it's at its best when it's covering up something more serious, like in the case of Lewin from FE4, uh, very much had the same mindset of like, you know, I'll kind of go with the flow, do whatever I want, um, and good things will, you know, eventually everything will work out. But that was, of course, uncovering um, a deep-seated and potentially even unconscious fear of failure and of, um, you know, aversion to responsibility. And Fergus, as far as I'm aware, this is played straight. You know, it's kind of just meant to be like, yeah, he's just a fun dude. And that's not, uh, I'm not like a huge fan of that, but it's fine. You know, like it's, it's all right. It's, it, he's got charisma. He's, he's funny. You know, some of his lines are, are good. And, for all I because like he's very like laid back again to the point of it being a little bit weird and uncomfortable that he's just chill with a lot of the stuff that's going on. So it could very well be a little bit more going. There could very well be a little bit more going on than I'm giving him credit for. But as of right now and where I'm at in the story, that's pretty much all there is. Uh, although I don't think he gets any more dialogue anyway other than his death quote. So maybe I just need to let him die and see what happens. There's a uh, like a fan theory that he's related to Beowulf, but I don't remember like all the details of it. I'll go over more about it when we get the Beow sword later on because that's kind of where most of the theory comes from. But for right now, you know, and he also like resemble like he's blonde also and is a uh, you know is in the same class as Beowulf. So there's a few a few similarities there for sure. As a unit, Fergus is excellent. Eventually, of course, he will be on a horse. For right now, he is not. But this is actually not too, too bad. Because Fergus is a sword knight, or a free knight. Um, mounted, he uses swords, which means that he shares his weapon rank, both indoors and outdoors. This is a, tr a trait that is only shared, I believe, by, like, obviously cavaliers. You know, like, characters who can use both lances and swords, of which I think there might only be one. Maybe there's more, I don't remember. And then uh, the mounted bow users, so Selfina and Robert, who are both, well, Robert's bad, Selfina's like, okay. 
So he has a very unique distinction, uh, his class does at any rate, and as a result, he comes with a C rank in Swords, which is the highest other than like if you've been spamming Leaf non-stop for the first, first three maps or four maps. He's probably going to be the highest Sword rank that you have right now, which is great because you get a Rapier in this map. The Rapier is a C rank Sword that does effective damage against Armor Knights and has a, like a, a little bit of crit on it. I think it's like 15 crit or something like that. Now, this is significant because Fergus has a Pursuit Critical of 5, which means that with the Rapier crit plus his skill, plus another factor we're going to talk about in a second, he has like pretty much a guaranteed crit chance, even more so than, say, Orson, um, after, you know, on, on his second attack, basically. And he's fast, so he's going to double attack quite often, if not always. And then, of course, once we get back outside, he will be on his horse and be able to do all of this with an extra, like, three movement or whatever. So, overall, Fergus is an excellent, excellent character. He's a little bit hamstrung by being indoors. Again, he, he does st suffer from a stat reduction similar to Brighton. But honestly, it's not even that noticeable. Like, he's still plenty fast and plenty strong. So, it's really not even that big of a deal. And then, you know, the movement issue is a little bit kind of bad but like that's you know you can circumvent that and it's not like most characters are going to have really high movement in this section of the game anyway Karin is a pegasus knight um unfortunately that is not as great of a class to be in in this game compared to well actually i shouldn't say that it's it's still a really good class the problem is that Karin's uh unique individual circumstances make her a little bit difficult to use in the same way that someone like Florina or Vanessa would be. Usually, those characters become like combat gods. You know, they're not always super strong, and they're certainly not always bulky, but with the right amount of investment, they can be mobile and basically unimpeded by terrain um, killing machines that sweep through the entire game with ease. Uh, and they're very often the best characters in their respective games, or at least, like, up there. Harin, unfortunately, has very little wiggle room, because unlike Brighton and unlike uh, Fargus, she starts with E-Swords. And there aren't even any, like, E-Swords that you're guaranteed to have other than Brighton's Iron Sword. Oh, and uh, actually, also, uh, I think... Actually, no, there's, uh, there's a few. Okay. But... The point I'm trying to make is that you have to take weapons away from other people to give them to Karin if you want her to use them. She gets the javelin, um, but she can't use that until she's promoted. And in fact, I don't even know if she can use it when she's promoted. I think she might have E-lances. I'm not sure, though. Now, that's not to say that she's unusable. No one in this game is unusable. But even, even like, without that consideration, like, she's not even that bad. If you're willing to just take uh, Lara's slim sword off of her and throw it on Karin and have her kill some mages that have had their tomes stolen. Like she'll level up pretty quickly and turn into a pretty good unit. Um, now flight. Even if you don't train Karin a single little bit, even if she doesn't get any levels, being able to fly is a really nice, a uh, really nice benefit. She can go secure side objectives. She can carry other units around the map. She can just access places that other characters might not have uh, as easy access to. So there's a lot of benefits to just having her around as a flyer, even if you don't use her for any combat. 
if you dismount her, uh, and in these first few maps where she's forced to be dismounted, she can be used as really good capture bait, which we'll talk about in a second. So none of this is to say that she's bad. I just think it's worth mentioning that she is a little bit different from what I think most people are going to expect from an early game Pegasus Knight. The early game Pegasus Knight is a an archetype that is known, I think, at least by experienced players, to be a incredible um, asset to any army. You know, pretty just like think of of all the other early game Pegasus Knights that you can think of, Sumia. Paula, especially, but uh, also Kata from FE11, Mar Marissa, I already said Vanessa and Florina, Thana, or Shani, Thani, what the fuck is her name, Shanna, Shanna, yeah, that's her name now, all of these great characters that are consistently in at least top five, if not top three, or even just like number one best character in their respective games, Harin is not that, she has great utility, and that's about it. Unless you're willing to go out of your way to train her and to make her a good combat unit, um, which I am because I love Pegasus Knights and I like Karin. So I'm going to be training her for combat and I'm going to be taking the time to, um, to grind her up. So I'll probably be mentioning her because she's going to be, you know, one of my favorite units for sure. You don't get like a good combat flyer in this game until chapter 14. You don't get a, another flyer in this game at all until chapter 14. And then like that character is amazing. But then the other flyer you get is just kind of okay. And then the last flyer you get is also just kind of okay. So combat flyers are not actually as common in this game as in most other games. Because in, in most games you can make pretty much any flyer a really good combat unit with pretty minimal effort unless it's like fe6 tate or whatever as a character she reminds me a lot of Eren. i've already talked about how she's kind of meant to be a parallel to Eren in a lot of ways kind of a romantic interest between her i say it's it's very light and very subtle not subtle but not like really hammered in in the same way that Eren and lewin was um, but it's certainly present, and you can certainly make that argument. And of course, their roles in their respective stories are very similar. So, you know, the loyal she's a loyal knight who has a little bit of it. I guess Aaron didn't really have a little bit of an attitude, but Fee certainly did. So she's like a mix between Aaron and Fee, I guess is the best way to put her. She's just kind of like, you know, she's there. She's fine. Nothing to write home about. It's kind of funny, but otherwise, nothing special. This game, what I'm about to say may confuse and frustrate you, but this game introduced supports. Now, not supports in the way that we know them today. Those were introduced in Fire Emblem 6, uh, the next game, and I actually, as a result, I actually forgot to talk about them in the first episode, probably for the best because there was already a ton that I had to talk about in that episode, but uh, supports in this game, uh, work similarly to how they do in later games, minus the conversations. Certain characters, when they're near each other, will get stat bonuses, essentially. And uh, only certain characters get these benefits from like certain other characters. Not all of them are reciprocal. For example, uh, Leaf, I think, gives stat bonuses to a bunch of different characters, but does not get stat bonuses from a bunch of different characters. So it only goes one way for many of his support partners. He also has like a dozen for some reason, whereas most characters have like between one and five. The reason I wrote it down here is because Karin and Fergus have a support together, which is the other way that Fergus has his crit boosted, essentially, is, is 
where I was going with that. Um, so he's going to be a crit machine if you keep him near Kyrene. He's going to be a crit machine even if you don't keep him near Kyrene, but especially with Kyrene, he's, he's going to be getting crits left and right. Now, theoretically, you could just go make a beeline for the last room up in the north. However, you're almost certainly not going to do that because you have villagers to save. And these guys are very important because they unlock Chapter 4X, which gives you a lot of great stuff. It gives you a great character, it gives you a couple of great items, um, and just generally is not one that you want to miss. So you're going to need to get these villagers out of the cell. The problem with that is after a few turns, you're going to start getting reinforcements from all directions. Now, this isn't really that big of a deal. The reinforcements are pretty weak for the most part, and you can usually dispatch them pretty easily. But there's two elements to these waves of reinforcements that make them way more annoying than I'm personally willing to put up with. The first thing, and this is going to sound kind of like a dumb reason, and maybe it is, but the first reason is that they're very irregular. They don't always spawn. There's a chance at the end of every turn, or sorry, I should say at the end of every player phase, that a soldier will spawn from the left, the bottom, and the right staircases. There's a chance, which means it's not always going to happen. What this means is that it's really difficult to plan for what's going to happen. Because you're going to want to save some time, because this map takes a really long time. So if you can uh, avoid having your characters nearby at all times and just slowly escorting these villagers to their escape point, then you're going to want to take that opportunity. But you're going to have to leave some characters behind to do that because there's a chance that one of the soldiers is going to spawn and immediately capture a one of the villagers. This isn't that big of a deal. It doesn't take a super long time to escort these characters to the objective. And if with a little luck, you're going to get them out without too much difficulty. The second problem that makes this even more frustrating is that they just keep coming for a really long time. It's, it, it's an absurd number of terms. I don't remember the exact number. I want to say it's like 30 or 50, like somewhere in that range of turns that these guys just keep coming for you. And if you get unlucky and they just keep spawning every turn, first of all, you're never going to get any of the villagers out because you're going to, one of them is going to show up, capture the villager, and then you're going to free that villager. Another character, another um, soldier is going to spawn, capture that same villager, and the process just continues. There's obviously ways around this. It's not always going to happen like that, but, you know, it can, it can definitely get frustrating if you can't get out of that loop. But the other result of this is that eventually, if you get unlucky and these soldiers just keep spawning over and over and over again, you're going to get completely overwhelmed. There's going to be dozens of enemies on the screen at any given time. Not dozens. It's probably like, you know, you can get upwards of like 12 to 15 enemies on your ass at any given time with a little bit of bad luck. And this wouldn't be so bad if it weren't for the fact that no one can reliably kill in Manster. There's like two characters that can reliably kill. Um, Leaf with his light brand, and Brighton with a steel sword crit, or an iron sword crit. Sometimes he can kill with an iron sword crit. Fergus can also do it, but because Fergus is, um, that's the other issue, right? Because you don't have a ton of uses on your weapons. 
you come in with a finite number of weapons and you don't get any more for a while unless you're able to capture sword-using enemies, but there aren't any in this chapter, and I don't think there are any for the entirety of Manster. So Fergus can reliably kill with the rapier, but if he uses the rapier too much, it's just going to break, and then you're not going to have it anymore, and that sucks because the rapier is really nice, especially for a bit of a the segment that's coming up in just a minute. So you're forced to like squander your resources on these enemies that just keep coming and coming and coming, and eventually you just have to like hope that they'll stop spawning, or you'll be able to get a couple turns where only one spawns or zero spawn. And you have to do this for two groups of prisoners. This is kind of why I mentioned that having the first group of prisoners escape early is kind of nice before the reinforcements start showing up, because it's a lot easier to keep, like, Lara safe from the reinforcements than it is to keep Lara and Lithis and four NPCs safe from the reinforcements. So it's going to take you forever just to get this pa past this section. Between getting all of the items out of the chests and escorting all the villagers out and making sure that you are... You know, you, you aren't getting overwhelmed by enemies. It is going to take you many turns before you're able to get up to that northern room with the locked door. But eventually you will get there. You'll have all your units ready to go. And you'll have the, uh, you know, there, there won't be that many units on your ass to attack you from behind. So you'll feel safe and you'll feel confident to open up that locked door. At which point there is a non-zero chance that you just get fucked up anyway. <laughs> because in that door is a group of armor knights and mages, all of which have weapons that have crit on them. Unless you brought a scroll, or two scrolls for some reason, pretty much all of your characters are going to be facing a chance of getting crit and just dying. Again, there's not a whole lot you can do about this. Leaf, sometimes one-hit KOs or one-round KOs with the light brand. Fergus is able to crit with the or even probably just like kill straight up with the rapier, but that's not always going to be reliable. I keep saying sometimes, and I should probably clarify what I mean by this, because in this game, and in, in a lot of Fire Emblem games, but it's really noticeable in this one, enemies will not always have the same stats. There, You'll load up a map, and there will be a knight with like, six defense and then there will be a knight with nine defense and one of the knights will have four strength and another one will have 10 strength or something it's not quite that extreme but it's like it's a variance of like plus or minus three i think or two so it's a, a big amount of variance this is why i keep saying that sometimes brighton will kill with an iron sword crit but sometimes he won't it's just because some enemies will have more hp than others and it goes beyond this too because sometimes when you reset a map, different enemy, like the same enemies in the same places will have different stats. So, you know, if this one knight is a, is a one round KO with the light brand, the first time you attempt the map, it might not be the second time you attempt the map. So you can't reliably plan around that because you don't know what the, what the stat variance is going to look like. Even movement has some variation, although it's a lot less frequent, but you can have an enemy spawn with more movement than all the other enemies. So if you think you put Lara in a safe spot because, you know, that knight should only have five movement. Oh, whoops, it has six movement. And then also, if that knight had five movement last time you attempted the map and you think he's going to have five movement again, whoops, this time he spawned with six movement. So even though that spot was safe last, last time, it's not this time. So get fucked, I guess. The randomization of the reinforcement spawning 
the crit chance that you're inevitably going to have to face, as well as the stat variants, and especially the stat variants of this final room, where enemies can sometimes be one-hit KOs, sometimes won't be. It's really hard to plan around what you're going to see and what you're going to go up against this map, and I can kind of see that as being a positive if you're into that, but I'm just not. And I think that's really what it boils down to. There's a difference between, like, thinking on your feet and having to, like, adapt to a difficult situation versus not being able to plan and formulate any sort of strategy at all. You're not able to be proactive in this map. You are, to a certain extent. Kind of like what I said about getting the right-hand group of villagers out early. That's an example of being proactive because you know that the reinforcements don't spawn for a certain number of turns and you can get those guys out early to make that work, you know? Now imagine if the turn that the reinforcements started spawning on was random. <laughs> you wouldn't be able to plan around that anymore and you wouldn't be able to develop as effective of a strategy for getting through this section of the game. And that's essentially what this map does. It takes everything that you would want to have as a baseline of information, enemy stats, enemy location, the uh, timing and location of reinforcements, all the things that you need to make an informed strategy and just throw it out the window and tell you that if you get unlucky, all of your strategies can just go to hell. So what you have to do is you have to play extremely defensively and even then, you might just get crit and die in the last room. Oh, and I haven't even talked about my favorite uh, randomization aspect of this map, which is that when you reset the map, the location of all of the items in the chests gets shuffled. So if you got the lockpick super early last time, and Lifus was able to help you out picking locks and getting through that section of the game, or section of the chapter, faster, this time, the lockpick might be the last thing that you get, and Lifus isn't able to do anything for a large chunk of the map, and you have to waste time just doing everything with Lara. It's obnoxious, for sure. There are ways to make this map a little bit easier on yourself, especially in terms of, like, the enemies being a little overwhelming. Lara and Karin make great capture bait, which is a technique and a strategy that is really useful for getting through this chapter, where essentially, if an enemy can capture one of your units, they will always go for it. And Karin and Lara have really low constitution, so most enemies are going to be able to capture them without much of a problem. If you take away their weapons, then the enemy will always be able to capture them, and they will always do so, which makes them not attack you on that turn. You can, you can safely say that like one less enemy is going to be attacking you that turn, and plan accordingly around that. Or, I mean, honestly, you could do it with both if you feel like you needed to have two enemies off your back for a turn. Uh, you can have both Lara and Karin serve as capture bait. So that is an effective way of making sure that you're not getting too overwhelmed by the enemies, but it only takes you so far. You know, it's it's only takes you so far, and then if you get crit by a, you know, a guy with a Thunder Tome in the last room, then you just have to reset the map anyway. So, it, And it wouldn't even be like a big deal if the, the luck-based aspects were front-loaded, which is kind of why I don't think 4X is that bad, because it's really luck-based, but at, like on turn 1 and turn 2. And then, you know, you can just reset the map and get through, like, you know, those first two turns, and eventually it'll be fine. This map, the, all the luck-based elements, or most of them at least, come in on, like, turn 25. You know, it's like, 
there's a lot of map that you're going to have to redo if you get screwed over by luck in the last room of the map. And that's frustrating. It's absolutely frustrating. So yeah, I mean, that's kind of why, like, I'm, I'm probably not making it sound that bad. And it's not, it's certainly, like, workable if you know what you're doing. But when I first played this map, I was so frustrated. And it's still a map that I have such a problem with to this day. And I don't know if I'm just bad at forming strategies. Maybe, maybe everything I've said is just, like, from the perspective of someone who sucks. And this map isn't really that hard. But, man... It just frustrates me, you know, and I don't have a good time with it. And really, at the end of the day, for Fire Emblem, having a good time with it is usually really easy for me. I like Fire Emblem a lot. So to say that there's a map that I can play and just be like, man, I'm straight up just not having a good time. You know, that's not that's not great. And I think it really is a contender for my least favorite map in the series. It's just so boring i mean you know like and that's like it, it would be okay if the map was at least exciting i guess but it's so mind-numbing for the first section and you have to do the same shit over and over again and then you it just all go to hell at the last minute and you're fucked so i don't like it maybe you do that's fine this is definitely the worst that manster gets i don't think that 4x and 5 are great either i think they're both really really bad as well and six, but for a different reason, and we'll talk about that later. Uh, there is one more thing. Actually, there's a few more things that I want to talk about here. First of all, and this is just like me complaining a little bit. Remember how I said that you're almost never going to have a 99% chance miss that matters? Well, guess what? It happened to me this time. I would have had 100 hit, and I didn't because of the mechanic, and I missed, and it actually made a significant difference. I'm pretty sure. I don't know if it caused me to reset, but it made my, my the likelihood of me having to reset skyrocket tremendously when I missed that 99% chance. Uh, I think it was with Leaf's light brand. So, yeah, it was it was frustrating for sure. But you know, once in a blue moon. The other thing that's significant about the end of this map, and something that's actually really easy to miss, too, if you uh, aren't paying close enough attention, one of the characters in this last room is recruitable. He's the character who Raedric was talking to at the beginning of the map. His name is Dalson, and he's an armor knight. You recruit him by talking to him with Leaf, and you had to have saved a particular child in Chapter 3X. He's one of the delayed rewards that I was talking about. Two of those houses give you a reward right away, and then two of them make you wait. This is one of them. The other one comes in Chapter 7. Dalson is a pretty bland character overall. He's a member of the Royal Army, or the like the Imperial Army. He's just like a, a regular old prison guard, but he signed up with the army because he was told that if he did, his family would be left alone. And then when his brother was kidnapped, or his sister, what, I think it was his brother, when his brother was kidnapped and you know almost killed, he realized that that was a load of dog shit and that he should join up with Leaf to stop the Empire from doing these sorts of things again. Standard stuff. I, I have said in the past that I like this archetype of a character that is, you know, has no obligation or real um, loyalty to the main character other than, like, they just are committed to doing the right thing and are just a typical average guy. I like that. And uh, Dalson definitely fits into that description. But other than that, he's kind of bland, kind of boring. As a unit, he's terrible. I had an 
incredibly busted Dalson the last time I played this game. He, I rigged, I didn't rig any level ups, but I gave him scrolls and stuff to increase his growth rates. He capped almost everything except like magic and luck, I think were the only two things he didn't cap. And and this was in chapter 14. This was halfway through the game. He had capped everything except luck and magic. And capped movement, I think. He had plus four movement, which I think is the highest you can possibly go. So absolutely bonkers ridiculous how good this guy was. He was like level, he was like a level 19 general by the time that I stopped that playthrough at chapter 14. So really, really good. Uh, unfortunately, most of the time, he is not going to be that good. He can be made a lot better and given a legitimate niche in Manster if you bring the Brave Axe. The problem is, I thought that I had brought the Brave Axe, but it looks like I didn't. It must have ended up like on someone random, or maybe it's in Avel's inventory and I forgot about it. I thought I would have the Brave Axe, and I didn't. So Dalshin was kind of dead weight for me, uh, certainly, but he wasn't, you know, he can still chip damage and stuff. He's He can do, he can do some damage. Uh, bring in the Brave Axe, though, makes him good at, like, reliably killing things. So that's solid and definitely something you should try out if you haven't in the past. Dawson with the Brave Axe in Manster is legitimately one of the most reliable ways you have to kill things, which is crazy because Dawson himself is just, like, so bad. He's an armor knight, though. Low movement. Pretty bad stats overall. Bad speed. Bad, uh, pretty bad skill. But good strength and defense and HP. So he'll be all right. He's serviceable for sure. This map is an escape map, and there's many in the game, and all of the ones in Manster are escape maps. If you escape, I've already talked about this, but I'll repeat it here and give a little bit more information on it. If you escape a map with Leaf, the map will end, and anyone who has not already left will be left behind, and you will not have access to them for a very long time. You do actually get these characters back at a later time. Um, this is also true if a and if an enemy captures one of your units, like if you use Lara as capture bait and the enemy manages to get away, then the same thing happens where they are taken away from you for a really long time and you will get them back eventually, but not until close to the end of the game. There is a Gaiden chapter where it is actually unlocked by having someone be captured because you don't... This is The map where you get captured characters back is not accessible to you unless there is a character to get back, basically, is, is the gist of it. So if you don't have any characters who are captured by that point in the game, you will not go to the Gaiden map. Most And there's a lot of good reasons to go to the Gaiden map. For my purposes, I'm playing every map in the game, so I have to go there anyway. But I probably would, just because there's so many good items in that map. What a lot of people opt to do is to leave Dalson behind in one of these maps because he's so bad. Um, he's just he's just not that good. Even with the Brave Axe, you know, by the end of Chapter 6, he's certainly not really like... Like, there are, you're going to have a lot of better units. Fergus and Brighton are going to be mounted, so is Karin. You're going to get Finn back in Chapter 7. So there's a lot of good reasons to just leave Dalson behind in, like, Chapter 5 or Chapter 6. I personally chose not to. Um, I guess I still have to do Chapter 7, but I'm not going to there either because I have a time in mind where I would like to leave some of my characters behind. I just wanted to bring that up because I know it's like a very common strategy that people use. And I'm sure that, you know, I felt like it would be I would be remiss to not mention it while talking about Manster. And the last thing I wanted to mention before we end this map is that as you're escaping with your characters, 
with the introduction of the escape objective came the introduction of escape quotes. Every character, when they escape, has like a little blurb that they say, basically just a quip or a piece of dialogue. And it's always the same. It doesn't change map to map, with the exception of chapter five, but we'll talk about that. It's usually just something like, uh, I think Karin says, you know, like, oh, I'll go on ahead. Liffis is like, uh, you know, <laughs> another clean escape or something like that. And then characters like Fergus and Brighton are like, man, you should have just, you know, I shouldn't have been the last one. I should be the last one out of here. You guys should have escaped before me. Something like that. Something to that effect. So it characterizes them all a little well. And then every character has one. So we'll also get to see ones from like Finn or Dagdar. Um, I, you know, actually, Avel might not have one. I don't actually know. Maybe she does. I'm not sure. Anyway, um, with all of that out of the way, we can go ahead and have everyone escape. Once we've cleared the last room, we can have everyone escape and then have Leaf follow after them. And that is the end of the gameplay section of this map. There is a little bit more in the story. Apparently, in the middle of all of this, just like literally in this blacked out section in the middle of the map that we've been fighting around this whole time, there has been some kind of meeting going on or some kind of like ritual because they seem to be at a kind of altar between some of the most important people in all of Yggdral. Manfroy is there. Julius is there. Uh, Ishtar is there. I think Bloom might also be there. And then a character who we haven't met yet named Veld. They're just talking about evil shit, you know. Um, they say that Manster is pretty much completely under their control, which leaves Tara, which is a place we've seen before, or heard of before, as the only remaining free city in the Manster district, or like the entire Thracian continent or something like that. At this point, a question is raised of the loyalty of House Frege, because they seem to be like a little resistance to what's going on in the Manster district. At which point the conversation turns to Ishtar, who basically just says, like, hey, listen, we're loyal and all, but these child hunts are going way too far. Like, we're not cool with this dog. Even, like, my dad is not chill with, with the child hunts, um, and we really need to put a stop to this. Julius kind of, like, talks her into it and saying, like, I, basically, he says that, like, they're not actually being killed and that they're just being, like, raised to be stronger, essentially which is still fucked up. Obviously, they're, like, they're being indoctrinated into a cult, but also many of them are being killed, so Julius is just lying here. Ishtar still seems to have some misgivings about the situation, and in fact, I made a note here because she's so much more vocal about this in this game than she ever was in FE4. Every time it came up in FE4, she was like, yeah, whatever. And then she helped at the end, but nothing in her dialogue like suggested that I don't know she just she was not like putting up much of a fight about it anytime Julie and even here I guess uh even every time Julius was like hey don't worry about it she was like okay yeah cool whatever you know she drops the subject very quickly when Julius is around but uh I do want to bring attention to that here because she is um not happy about it and she makes her her discontent very heard in this cutscene compared to FE4 where it barely came up, and any time that she did anything, it was always behind uh, behind closed doors, so to speak, behind the back of Julius and Arvis. And that is where the map ends. Bad map. <laughs> I don't like it, but I've kind of said my piece on it. I think overall, I can see the appeal for a lot of people, 
but it's just it it is a perfect storm of elements to make me not like it. So yeah, it's it's one of my least favorite maps in the series, if not my number one least favorite map. So that's what I gotta say about it. And thankfully, it, I think pretty much you can say that every map gets better. 4X is also pretty bad, and 5 is slightly better, but also pretty bad. But then 6 and 7 are go back to being alright. So, um, with that said, I guess that's a nice enough segue. We'll head into chapter 4X, which is called Hero of the Winds. So we've moved to a new section of the prison. We see Sed and Asvel uh, walking around looking for the children that they're going to try to save. And they're just, you know, they're, they're talking, they're shooting the shit. And Sed happens to mention offhand that they have intel that Leaf is being held in this prison. Asvel, as soon as he hears this, is like, wait, shit, are you serious, Leaf? And they talk about that a little bit. Apparently, Asvel knows Leaf. I don't think we know at this point what their relationship is, but we find out soon. Asvel has apparently been looking for Leaf for years. So he decides that he wants to split off from Sed to go meet up with Leaf and join forces with him. So Sed is going to start heading out on his own. Sed mentions that he's going to send the Magi out of Manster and stick around on his own and find his own way out eventually. But he wants his group to get out of there because they've accomplished as much as they can, I guess, in Manster at this point. So he just wants to move out of there and make sure that everyone in his group is safe. There's a sweet little conversation between these two. I don't know if they explain all the details right here. But basically, I think the gist is that Asvel found Sed. Like, as he was looking for Leaf, he came across Sed. And the two have kind of developed a student-teacher sort of relationship. Like, uh, like Irk and Pent, Ewan and Saleh, Sala from FE8. That sort of dynamic. So they just have a cute moment together where, the, you know, they vow to meet each other again. And Asvel vows to put everything he's learned to good use, yada yada, that sort of thing. At this point, we're given control back of Leaf. Sed and Asvel are green units up on the top part of the map. We can't access them right now. I mean, we could. But we're going to take some time because in this section of the map where Leaf is, uh, we have to save some children. The first thing you're going to notice about this map, though, is that it is a fog of war map. There's a lot of those in this game. Again, there's at least half a dozen, maybe more. There's so fucking many of them, and they suck so bad. This is where that RNG element comes in, because especially if you're not playing with a guide, I mean, honestly, even a guide probably wouldn't detail everything about this map to the extent that you would need to make this reliable, but there are enemies around you on all sides. There's mages, there's armor knights, there's soldiers, there might even be a couple of, like, myrmidons, I don't remember, but they're everywhere, and there's no way to know where they are, what they're going to do, how much attack they have, you know, who they're going to go for, who's in their range, who isn't in their range. It's just, it's just some bullshit. You kind of just have to roll the dice to make sure that you can survive the first turn. But unlike chapter four, like I was saying, this map's luck-based elements are all front-loaded. So if you don't survive the first turn or two, then you can just reset, and it's it's a quick, like, five-minute thing to get back to where you were. Unlike chapter four, where it could be, like, 15, 20 minutes between resets, so at least that's nice. It's not to say that it's impossible to get screwed over as you progress through the later parts of this map, but it's certainly a lot less common. 
So after you clear out all the enemies around you, you have to let out the kids. And there's actually uh, no Gaiden chapter attached to this. 4XX, this is some FE7 shit. But no, what the kids do is, I think there's six, and all of them are associated with a reward that you get in chapter six. So, and then I don't know which one corresponds to which. It's just easy. It's easier to just get all of them. There's no reason to not save some of them and then and then save others. Unlike last time, there are going to be basically no reinforcements. I do think reinforcements come from this part of the map later, but I don't think it is like they don't come anytime soon. So you can very easily get the kids out, unlike in chapter four. So that part's easy, at least. Asvel and Sed are kind of just doing their own thing up north. They have to fight some enemies, but they will never, ever, 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 ever die in a million billion years. Sed has Forseti, which makes him incredibly good, and just, he will kill enemies nonstop. Asvel is a little bit trickier. He might get hurt, I guess, but it's, you know, he's almost never going to die. Uh, he, at worst, he uses a few uses of his personal tome. Which is something you do want to avoid, but there's nothing you can really do about it at first. When you unlock your way into that hallway where they are, you can have a couple of conversations. The first is between Leaf and Asvel. They greet each other as old friends, and they get into their backstory a little bit. I guess when Leaf was staying in Tara for that long stretch of time, this is like the fourth or fifth time that Tara has come up. It's like a really important part of this game story. Tara was, you know, where they met for the first time, and... They became like best friends, like inseparably close. But at some point, Leaf took off and Leaf reveals that it was because, you know, the Empire came and he didn't want Asvel to get caught up in it. So he just took off without even saying goodbye. And Asvel gets really offended by this. He's like, hey, listen, man, we were best friends. We like swore that we would. They took like oaths to like live and die together or some shit like that. You know, they were kids <laughs> when this happened. Um, I mean, they're still kids, but I think. At the time, Leaf was 13, which Leaf talks a lot in this conversation about how he was, like, prepared to die. <laughs> you know, he was like, you know, if the Empire kills me, that's one thing, but I didn't want anyone else to get caught up in this. I think that this is, first of all, it's a testament to his character, but I also think that it's kind of a, a weird aspect. And this is certainly not something that's exclusive to Fire Emblem, but it's especially in like anime and other Japanese forms of media, certainly, again, not exclusive to those types of media at all. Happens a lot in Western media as well, but I notice it more often in like anime and that sort of thing. Writer's insistence on forgetting that teenagers and children are teenagers and children, basically just writing kids as adults. This is a classic example of that because what 13-year-old is like, yeah, you know, I've come to terms with my own mortality and am comfortable with the idea of being killed. Like that's, that's pretty crazy. I don't, I don't think that that's uh, I don't know. Again, it's a small thing and it's not at all exclusive to Fire Emblem, but it's always something that bothers me a little bit when, when they decide to just like, and it's one thing if they're like 16 or 17, but at the time of like when Leaf is talking about here, he was 13. So that's just a stretching my, my disbelief a little bit. I would have been more willing to accept if he had been like, you know, I ran away because I was scared or because, you know, Finn made me leave or something like that because he's 13. <laughs> you know, like these sorts of things 
are a lot of the time just out of his control. And I don't think they would, it would like reflect, reflect badly on his character if he was just like, yeah, you know, uh, I didn't want to die, so I needed to get out of there and I didn't have enough time to say goodbye to you, so I'm sorry. Because as it stands, this whole like 13-year-old's making a vow to live and die together is played completely straight and treated as just like, yeah, you know, they meant it. <laughs> it's like completely, completely rational and normal. Whereas I think that it would have been more interesting if they had looked at that with a little bit of scrutiny, you know, like, was Leaf really prepared to make that kind of commitment at age 13? And if they had been like, no, he wasn't, and he realized that when the Empire came and he decided to take off, I think that that would be fine. I think it would humanize Leaf in a really interesting way instead of holding him up as this kind of, like, messiah figure of, like, yeah, you know, death is just the next great adventure, you know? <laughs> like, that, that sort of thing. I think it's just it's just really cliched and and uninteresting a lot of the time but again what can you do it's it's a very common trope and it's just it just be like that sometimes i guess but this time they decide that they're going to stick together no matter what and asvel joins up with leaf he becomes blue he's recruited and i cannot wait to talk about this guy so asvel is i mean as a character i already kind of like gave the gist. He's very loyal to Leaf and said he's like he's he's very much, you know, the the sprightly young mage boy character, you know. Um he's a little bit I, I would liken him to Ewan more than I would liken him to say Urk, because Urk is a lot more serious. Loot is a lot more like high and mighty. Whereas Asvel is kind of is he's he's basically a, a child, you know. He acts he acts like a kid, for sure. Although I don't think he's as young as Ewan. He's pretty cool, you know. I, I I like his interactions with Leaf, as cliched as they are certainly are. I think that they're uh, you know they're effective for what they are. What's really interesting though, and what I'm most excited to talk about with Asvel is his role in the gameplay, because Asvel is bar none in my opinion, the best combat unit in the game. And that's not, again, this is something that's come up a few times and will come up many times in the future. Being a good combat unit is not that valuable in Thracia because, especially later on in the game, warp becomes the meta. You know, just warp skipping every map is the meta. I'm not going to do that, and we'll get more into that when we actually get warp, but for right now, just know that I'm not going to warp skip maps uh, because that's lame, and I kind of just want to experience the maps as they were meant to be played. But for most people, you know, warp skipping is the meta for like the back half of the game. So being able to fight off hordes of enemies is not as important. And even if it was, it's incredibly easy to make every unit good at combat. It's just, you know, you get so many that are just good at base, first of all, but then you also get plenty that have good growth rates. And then even those that have bad growth rates, you can use scrolls to bump them up. Or you can use scrolls on the characters with good growth rates to make them even better. Being a good combat unit is not something that is like, you, could, you can't put it on your resume. It's the equivalent of saying that you had, you know, a babysitting job in high school on your resume. Asvel's different, though. Asvel is certainly built different. He is the best combat unit in the game for a few reasons. First of all, he is... A magic unit and you certainly get more of those but asvel is the first one you get uh i think right yeah i mean other than safi but she doesn't count he's the first one you get and he is 
really it's really easy for him to take advantage of scrolls, especially one that we're about to get, which boosts his speed growth. There's so many enemies in this section of the game in Manster that just fold the second that you use magic on them. Unfortunately, he's not fast enough to double most of the time because, at least at base, I mean, because he is weighed down by his tomes. Tomes are actually not mitigated by build in this game. They they are not, you're not able to offset the weight of tomes in any capacity. So even if he has 20 builds somehow, a four weight tome is going to still weigh him down by four points of speed. So at base, he's not going to double a lot. But he can double sometimes, and it's really easy for him to get experience. Keep in mind, I'm playing Paragon mode, so he's going to get experience out the wazoo. His promotion bonuses are absolutely insane. This is like a meme within this game, how good the Sage promotion bonuses are. And Asvel is one of those. He has incredible stats when he promotes. He has incredible stats before he promotes because his growth rates are pretty good. So really all he needs is a few levels to get going. But the real thing, and I'm sure the thing that he's most well-known for, is his personal weapon, the Graph Caliber. The Graph Caliber is a wind tome that is very light and has crit on it. I think it's like 20 or 30 crit. It's really high. It's uh, pretty light and has really high might. Unfortunately, unlike most personal weapons, it only caps out at 40 uses instead of the usual 60. I think tomes in this game just all have 40 uses, like at maximum. So that's kind of a bummer. He gets 20 less uses compared to someone like Finn or Nana, who have their own personal weapons, or Leaf for that matter. But the Graph Caliber is incredible. Combined with his naturally high stats, he's going to be killing everything. And that leads me to the real reason why he's great, is that he is the best boss killer in the game by far. Hitting on magic is a huge deal. Most bosses have really high defense, especially considering that they're on thrones, which are busted in this game, but usually not very good resistance because their magic stat is their resistance stat. Some, especially late game bosses, do have high magic. Some of them are just magic bosses, but then also some of them are just generals who have like 15 to 20 magic because they don't want their weapons to get stolen by Tina, but we'll talk about that another time. Um, so it's not like Asvel, it's just a, like a one-hit kill button for everything, but the majority of bosses go down extremely easily uh, in the presence of Asvel. And that's really how he's able to keep up in this warp-skipping metagame that the, la uh, the later half of the game becomes, because you got to remember that warp-skipping involves two things. You have to warp the protagonist to the point where they need to be, and you also need to kill the boss of the map so that the protagonist can seize the castle or whatever it may be. So being able to warp is important, but also being able to get rid of the boss that's obstructing Leaf from capturing the throne is also incredibly important. And Asvel is by far the best at doing that. So he's certainly the best combat unit in the game. He's the only one with like a legitimate niche that almost no one is able to replicate until you get like a promoted Sarah who doesn't join until, like, past the halfway point. So I guess also maybe, like, Homer could do it. But that's that's pretty much it, really. So Asvel just shits on the entire game, and that's, that's the end of that. <laughs> that's pretty much all I have to say about him. He's really, really good. And if somehow you've played Thracia and haven't used him, absolutely try next time you play if you play again, because 
He is an absolute monster. A little bit rocky at base, but pretty easy to get going, especially on Paragon mode. The other conversation you can have is between Karin and Sed. Karin has been looking for Sed, as she mentioned last chapter, so she takes this opportunity to confront him about the fact that he left. And I find this conversation to be interesting, really, really interesting on a number of levels. So Sed, unfortunately, has not been made aware yet that his mother has died. So Fee, or not Fee, Karin has to break the bad news to him. And he's really shaken up by this. And Karin asks him, please, you know, you got to come back. Fee is the one who's in charge of the country right now. And it's an incredibly strong burden for her. You're really putting her through a lot. Can you please just come back home and help your people? Karin basically just goes off on him. She she goes on a whole rant about, you know, like, you left your mother and your sister behind. You may be the heir to Sed's, you know, to Wind Crusader's legacy, but, you know, that doesn't do you a lot of good because, you know, you're just some loser who walked out on his family and, you know, you're doing Fia real cruelty. Please come back so that you can stop, so that she can have that responsibility lifted off her shoulders. And Sed takes this pretty well. He's like, yeah, you know, you're right. That's correct. I, you know, did a terrible thing. And I just wanted to see my dad. I wanted to have my dad and my mom meet up one last time before she died. So, you know, I, I'm really sorry for what I did. But I'm still not going to come back. <laughs> because I'm seeing the horrible things that are happening here in Manster. I'm seeing the horrible things that are happening here in Manster, and I can't just sit by and do nothing. So I'm going to stay here and continue to re- lead this rebel group because I feel like that's the right thing to do. And Karin is like, okay, yeah, that's fine. Just be safe or whatever. What I find weird here is that Sed asks her to go back to Selyse, but instead she just stays with Leaf. And I don't think there's ever a cutscene or anything addressing that. She's just like, yeah, okay, I'll go back to Selyse, and then she never does. And then this is kind of what I was talking about last chapter with a little bit of a a romantic implication going on here, because Sed gives her the scroll of Sed, um, one of the the Crusader scrolls that boosts growth rates. And he mentions that, you know, this is something that he was supposed to give to his betrothed, but that he wants her to have it instead. So... I mean, I guess if anything, you could say that that's kind of like, you know, I was going to give it to the woman I love, but instead I'm going to give it to you. So, you know, the implication there is certainly not uh, strong in favor of there being a romantic couple, but it's there. It's certainly present. And then he apologizes and just takes off. So the reason I find this conversation so interesting is that the parallels here between Sed and Lewin should be, like, incredibly obvious to anyone who's played both games. And I think it's really funny and probably intentional, the difference in how these situations are treated. Because if you look at what Sed is doing and what Lewin did back in, in honestly, both generations of FE4, they're doing exactly the same thing. And you might want to, like, spin it differently. I'm sure said would certainly want to spin it differently, but really there's no difference in what the two of them are doing. In Gen 1, Lewin left Solis and left, you know, his responsibilities behind because he felt that that was what was going to be the best thing for his country. 
And you can obviously argue that there's some, like, there's more to it than that. Lewin probably just didn't want to be the Prince of Solis and left with that as an excuse. But he is correct. I mean, his logic there is maybe flawed, but conceptually, he has a point, right? Like, he doesn't want to be the ruler of Solis. His uncles do. Why make a fight about it? Just let them have it, you know, and just everyone will be happy. So that's his logic behind that. And if anything, I think it's a little bit less selfish than what Sed is doing here because he's kind of just, you know, I mean, he's helping people. It's not that it's less selfish because he's helping people, certainly, whereas uh, Lewin was just kind of, you know, doing drugs and getting laid, you know, that sort of thing. So I'm not saying that Lewin was being selfless, but in terms of like their concern for what's happening to Solis, Lewin is above said in that regard, in terms of what he was doing in Gen 1. And then in Gen 2, they're again, they're basically just doing the same thing. Lewin left Solis, this time with no, you know, no ulterior motives, He at least, you know, none that are explicitly stated. So he's just doing the exact same thing that said is he's going to help people and leaving his country behind for the greater good essentially is what he want is what he's trying to do and said is doing the exact same thing and yet the game and the writing and the characters treat this entirely differently said is like you know i gotta help people i gotta save people and karin is immediately like oh said i'm so sorry i should have heard your side of the story first i didn't think that that's what you were doing you know i thought you were just leaving your family behind i'm so sorry please forgive me for what i said when Lewin, I mean, to be fair, Lewin never really tries to make his case, but in Gen 1, when he explains to Aaron why he left, Aaron's like, you fucking idiot. <laughs> that's, that's so stupid of you. Well, like, that's, that's obviously not the right thing to do. Just come back and we'll, and we'll sort things out. Aaron's having none of it. And then in Gen 2, he never really tries to defend himself when Seth is like, yo, what the fuck? Why did you leave? He doesn't try to make excuses, but said just like goes in on him. And I'm not, I'm certainly not saying that what Lewin did in either generation was right, but I'm also, what I am saying is that said is acting a lot like his dad here. And I think it's intentional. And it's, if so, that's really interesting. And I think that that's a cool dynamic to, to take these characters in because, you know, there's the whole, obviously the, the whole idea of like said is just the crusader said was the i mean he was the hero of the winds you know he went from place to place and helped people that is how he made his impact on the world and it's like almost feels like the people who inherit that legacy are compelled to do the same thing no matter what they do no matter what they try to do no matter how committed they want to be to their families and to their country the said blood within them is just going to constantly make them try to go out and find the people in the world who need them most and to help them. And that's not, I'm not saying that that's good or bad necessarily. I think you can make an argument for either. Um, but the fact that said is able to, in even in this conversation, you know, like talk about how his dad walked out on the family and to not even for a second consider that he's doing something very similar 
and that maybe there's a little bit of, of a similarity there. He's just like, no, my situation's different because, I mean, he admits that he was wrong, but he's also not really admitting he's wrong because he's still going to do it anyway. So, you know, he apologizes, but it's basically like, I'm going to do it anyway. There's no irony there. There's no, um, there's no sense of, of him being like, wow, huh, am I turning into my father? You know, that sort of thing. So, I don't know. It's cool. And this is like a great example of um, kind of a counterpoint to what I said earlier about how this game doesn't let there be any subtext. This is pretty subtextual and it's pretty great. So, you know, hit or miss, I guess. And honestly, that's really the the long and short of it. Um, I got another leaf move level up at some point in this map. That was pretty cool. Um, so now my leaf is at plus two movement. The only other things worth knowing, oh, I should mention that the said scroll gives you like, I think it's a little bit to magic, but then also the big thing is plus 30 to your speed growth, which is crazy. That's the high, I think that's the highest that any scroll boosts any growth rate is 30% for the speed growth on the said scroll. So this is how Asvel can snowball really easily. I mean, he has a really high speed growth to begin with, but with the said scroll, he's guaranteed to level it up. And I think he actually has a 5% chance to get two points of speed instead of just one. So, And then the only other thing really worth noting about this chapter is that in one of the chests, there's some chests around. In one of them is the Brave Sword, which is not a personal weapon in this game. Just like the Brave Axe and later the Brave Bow, it is not exclusive to any one character, although I will say it is the only one of those four that is not associated with any particular character. The Brave Axe was obviously like Halvin's special item that anyone can use for some reason, and then later the Brave Bow is given to a bow-using character named Selfina, who is like, you know, I'll treasure this forever, but then anyone can use it. So I don't really know what the deal is there. I feel like maybe they were gonna make all of the Brave Weapons personal weapons and then just like backed out at the last second because it would have made perfect sense for the brave axe and brave bow to be personal weapons to those two characters but i don't know brave sword though doesn't really have any character that's associated with it i will say that fergus is almost certainly the only character who will be able to use it anytime soon he can use it i, I actually got him to b rank swords in like like part way through chapter five i think so he was able to use it, and it's really good. You know, the bra all brave weapons are great in this game, and in every game, pretty much. So, and yeah, that's it. It's just another escape map. You have Leaf run out of the escape point in the north north northeast corner. This map is pretty harmless. I mean, I don't like it very much. It's certainly a bad map because I hate fog of war, and those first couple of maps are or those first couple of turns are just so so obnoxious. But afterwards. You know, there's some enemies that you can run into and they will, you know, they can fuck you up. But for the most part, I think you also get... Dalsin comes with a torch. So you can use a torch to make things a little bit easier on yourself. So it's not that bad. It could be a lot worse. It's certainly not like worst chapter in the series material, in my opinion. But certainly not great. So next up is chapter 5 called Mother and Daughter. Leaf and Co. have made it out of the dungeon. And we see, to start off the map, we see Avel, who went off with Radric at the beginning of Chapter 4, and she has met up with Nana. So Radric was was being honest in that regard, um, and they just talk to each other, you know, like, Avel's like, are you okay? You know, is everything alright? But Marita isn't there, and Avel's like, yo, 
you told me that you would let me see my daughter. Where is she? And Rager goes, does that like, you know, classic mustache twirling villain thing where he's like, I told you I could let you see your daughter, but I didn't tell you when you could see your daughter. And then he sends off some, um, basically they're in like a gladi- gladiator pit and tells Avel, you know, if you can get past these guys, I'll let you see your daughter. And Avel's like, all right, you son of a bitch, let's do this. At this point, we're given control over our group. We also have control over Avel and Nana. Avel, we've already talked about. Nana is a healer. She's a troubadour, so she'll be on a horse once we get her back outside. But for right now, she's on foot. She can also use swords, and she has her own personal weapon, the Earth Sword, which is, you know, from FE4. It's basically a 60-use Nosferatu tome that can, you know, attack at range. I'm pretty sure it does physical damage in, like, close quarters combat. But really what you're going to be doing with this is you're going to attack enemies from range, doing magic damage, and, I mean, possibly killing them if she's fast enough to double. Her stats are, like, okay. They're not anything to write home about. But being a healer is nice, especially a mounted healer. This is, our, I believe, our first mounted healer that we get. And is one of the only ones in the entire game. There's like two or three, I want to say. And the Earth Sword is really good. Character-wise, she's nothing special. She's Leaf's love interest in this game. But she doesn't really have a lot to do or say for herself. So, not really (laughs) exceptionally interesting. You know, honestly, despite the fact that she's been in two games... I don't know if I could give you a description of Nana's character if I tried. Like, I guess she's like caring and maybe a little soft-spoken, but I, I don't know. Um, I do know that if if um, she marries Ares, she's like, yeah, isn't it weird that we're fucking cousins? That's crazy, dude, right? Um, so I guess that's really the biggest impression that I have of Nana is that she's just like, you know, incest is really funny, um, is kind of her, the only thing that I know her character for right now, but Canonically, she ends up with Leaf, so whatever. Now, the object here is to survive with Marita, not Marita, with Avel and Nana as Leaf goes around and helps them escape from the gladiator pit. They're locked in there and they don't have a way to get out. Uh, Avel is like pretty easily able to deal with these guys, no problem. And then if she gets hit a couple times, Nana can heal her up. The thing that I always do is just back her into the corner where she is, you know, completely safe and Nana can stand behind her and heal without being risk being at risk of getting hit. I don't think any of the enemies have ranged weapons, so that's not really a problem. And yeah, so you're just going around. It reminds me a lot actually of chapter 8 of FE6 where you kind of just go around this castle in a big circle um and on the way you pick up Nana and Avel uh, on your way through. A few turns in Veld shows up. He's the the sorcerer who we saw last chapter with Manfroy. And he kind of like scolds Raedric a little bit for, you know, making entertainment out of this when he should have just like killed Avel. But he decides that he's since he's here, he might as well just stick around and enjoy the show. After getting through a certain number of the pit fighters, Raedric will fulfill his promise to Avel and allow her to see Marita. The problem is that Marita has been given a sword called, I think it's just called the Darkness Sword, which has basically taken over her mind. I mean, I think if if anyone's played Heroes, then they know about, like, Fallen Marita or whatever it is, whatever she's called. 
Um, this is what that is based on, because while she is using the sword, she is completely possessed and has no, like... Uh, that's not true. She does. She is conscious, as we'll see in a minute, but she is unable to control her own actions and instead is uh, is attacking her mother without being able to stop herself. So, eventually Marita's going to come up. I don't think that uh, Marita can kill Avel. Avel still has the invincibility flag, so she can't die, but she can be captured, which is weird. So it's a little hard to explain, but basically the point I'm trying to make is that you don't have to worry about Avel dying for the most part, uh, especially if she's fighting Marita. If you manage to get her like in a corner where only Marita can attack her, then that's fine because she won't fight back against Marita and Marita can't kill her. So they're both good. They're both Gucci. You don't even have to heal her at that point. Uh, I kept missing heals. I had two missed heals in a row at this point, and I don't think it was when I was fighting Marita. So... <laughs> Avil had a very real chance of, of being captured here, I think, but she, she managed to not have that happen. However, to make up for that, I actually got my first double heal. Double healing is something that happens in a couple of the games. I know it happens in Gaiden, and it happens in this game. I think that might be it. Maybe FE1, but I'm not sure. Basically, um, and I don't know how it works in those other games, but in this game, there is a percentage chance that you will be able to heal someone twice with you know in one round of of healing it doesn't work if your first heal already brings them up to full but if it doesn't then the percentage chance is skill plus speed plus luck all of that divided by 2 is the percentage chance so i think it's like a like for nana i'm pretty sure it was like a 10% chance or something like that 15 maybe so that's kind of nice that does mitigate the risk of missing heals, but it's also not something that you can plan around, so I don't necessarily think it makes up for it entirely, but it helps, certainly. This was also my first instance of seeing a enemy-triggered movement star. As I've mentioned in the past, some of the enemies and bosses have movement stars as well, and they can trigger them, which just gives them a 5-10% to 10 chance to just fuck you up with no no ability for you to do anything. Um, fortunately, as I said, Marita cannot kill Avel, so even though she had multiple chances to attack that turn, um, obviously nothing came of it, but that just kind of was like, oh shit, yeah, I forgot that, that some enemies also have movement stars. I mean, Marita, spoilers, Marita is a recruitable character that we'll get access to later on, so it's not really the same thing as like a random boss having a movement star, but it is an example of how movement stars can be used against you. Because obviously if Nana was exposed at that point, then, you know, she would have just died. Here's something that I didn't know, and I just found out about it this playthrough. If Avel, or anyone for that matter, because the walls are one tile thin, so you can shoot in with, like, uh, magic from Asbel. If all of the pit fighters die, except for Marita... A certain somebody shows up who is incredibly strong. His name is Galzus, and he is a, a character who is recurring throughout the game, and he is often used as a, like, like in Chapter 6 he's used, and I think also maybe in, like, one of the mid-game chapters, he is a character who is deployed as a way to, like, disincentivize people from taking maps really slowly. In Chapter 6... 
I, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here, but if you take too long to escape in Chapter 6, he shows up, and he has, like, cap stats in everything. He has Luna, he has uh, Astra, I think. He just, he is incredibly strong, really, really high build, so he doesn't get slowed down by, like, anything. He can capture, like, everyone. I know that he's in a few maps. I actually had no idea that he was in this map until I just uh until I saw him here. That was crazy. I had I had no idea. I was shitting myself. I was like, "What? How is Galz's here?" But no, yeah, he's um he can very, I mean, very 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 easily kill Nana, but then also like Avel does not stand a chance against this guy. He he would fuck her up real bad, but thankfully he never had the chance. That's really all that there is to say about the stuff that's going on in the pit. Now, eventually, a few one of a few things can happen. Either Avel gets captured by one of the enemies, or Leaf, or I guess, you know, Lifis or Lara or whoever gets the door open to rescue Avel and Nana. I think there's an, a third way as well, but I don't remember what it is. These things will trigger a cutscene in which Veld is like, okay, Raedric, I'm going to clean up your mess. And basically says, get over here to Avel and drags her over with a, I mean, I guess it would be a rescue staff, although he's certainly not rescuing Avel in this, in this instance, and uses a spell on her to turn her into stone and just basically make her into a stone statue. So, yeah, and I mean, after that, Raedric and Vel just fuck off and she's just left standing there. Uh, as this stone statue that you have to, like, watch, you have to, like, look at the whole map. That's really effective. They could have easily just, like, had them take her with them when they left, but they leave her there. And she's just sitting there the entire time as you, like, slowly walk around the center room. That's really effective. I think that that was a really cool decision on their part. But yeah, for all intents and purposes, Avel is dead. And there's nothing we can do about it, unfortunately. There's no way to save her um, from having this happen to her. So, Leaf is forced to grab Nana, because Nana's still doing okay, and get out of there. And at this point, Galzis will run away if he's there, so don't worry, you don't have to fight Galzis. I believe the other pit fighters will actually continue to fight you, um, but Galzis and Marita will not. I, I don't remember what happens to Marita, I think she just gets warped away. So they are forced to leave Avel behind, and also Marita. They they part of the reason why they wanted to go to Manster is to get Marita back. And not only did they not get Marita back, they lost Avel in the process. So really not looking too good for Leaf and Co here. But at least they have they have Nana back, so they got that going for them. The rest of the map is extremely uneventful. There's some promoted enemies that are a little bit scary. Like there's a sniper. Um, I think there's some like dark bishops over in the corner. And there's some treasure chests that you can get, but for the most part, it's really just like slowly making your way around the circle. This one isn't like offensively bad for any reason. It's not even like there's pretty much no luck involved, I don't think. Like, Avel can beat the pit fighters like pretty reliably. And unless you just get like crit by a stray thunder tome, you know, you, you'll be fine. So, this map is, is really its worst crime is just being boring, which personally. I think is, like, better than it being, like, actively poor for my mental health, uh, like, Chapter 4, and to a lesser extent, Chapter 4X. So, this map is just kind of boring. Take that as you will. It's not great, but it's not that bad either. 
takes a while, especially if you die and have to reset. It's like, oh man, <laughs> this is going to take me so long, but you'll get through it. Leaf and Nana have unique escape dialogue here that's basically just like, man, just just heard about Avel. Damn, that shit sucks. Then they leave. And that takes us straight into chapter six, titled The Escape. Leaf and Co. make it out of the castle. And as they're leaving, they run into who else but August. Uh, Leaf is understandably very confused to see August here. But apparently August was like planning to break Leaf out of prison, which is fucking sick. And I, I'm really curious how he would have gone about doing that. But, you know, as he says, it, it proved to be unnecessary because Leaf managed to escape on his own. The ramifications of what just happened with Avel are really like shown in this cutscene because we don't get a whole lot of it in chapter 5, but at the start of chapter 6, Leaf basically just, like, loses it. He's like, it feels like they've taken my mother from me all over again, which is bonkers, by the way, because he's known Avo for, like, I don't I don't know how long they were there. I don't think it was that long um, in Fianna, but I could be wrong, I guess. Maybe it was longer than I thought. But Leaf is, like, really feeling the impact of what just happened, and he tells August, like, listen... I need you to help me fight these guys because I want I want revenge and I want to get Avel back. And he he tells August what happened and August is like, "Listen, you ca you can't save her. If she was turned to stone, then the only way to save her would be if someone from Manfroy's bloodline actually helped you, which is beyond unreasonable to expect. So, yeah, don't get your hopes up for that." But I will help you fight against the Empire. I want you to be a rallying point for all of the Thracian Peninsula because he is the heir to the ruling family and, you know, all the oppressed people in the country would rally behind him if he were to, like, raise an army. So August thinks that he really has the potential to take down the Empire and August promises him that he will, you know, help bring an end to what they've done here. At some point during all this, August mentions that there are rumors that the Yid Shrine in the Yid Desert is home to a lot of stone statues that are kept there as trophies of like people who had defied the Loptir cult in the past. He even mentions that there might be people in Sigurd's army that are in that shrine, which is kind of just offhand, you know, an offhanded comment. And I don't know if it's true or not, first of all, but also, if it is, it's never, like, followed up on in any capacity. I don't necessarily think that it would be, because, like, we see in FE4, Manfroy killed Lewin, like, just straight up. No no turning to stone bullshit with him, he just, like, murked Lewin very, very quickly. Um, but I guess it's possible, like, Lachesis was there. The implication, certainly, is that Lachesis... Because we know Lachesis died while crossing the Yid Desert. So the implication, I think, is supposed to be like maybe she was captured and turned to stone and brought back to that shrine. But if it is, I don't believe that it's ever elaborated on. Um, poor Diarmud, though. I mean, he's... <laughs> um, and Nana, for that matter, because they were like right there in Chapter 7 of FE4, which hasn't happened yet in this in this series of events. But, um, you know, it's a, it's a bummer for sure. And then... August just, like, takes a minute to reaffirm how powerful the Loptir cult really is. I mean, 
Leaf has a hard time like wrapping his brain around it, but August is essentially like, listen, this is a society where these cultists can just walk up and take children from their homes and no one will do anything or no one can do anything. And that like that kind of power is unbelievable. August says that, you know, people try to put up a fight, but obviously they're not like trained soldiers. They're just regular people with no weapons, no training and no resources. So they all just get killed because what else are they going to do? You know, like when you're faced with such overwhelming power, there's only so much you can do. And Leaf kind of takes a minute to reflect on that of like, holy shit, this is really what I'm up against. Um, And that's interesting. After this, they're just talking a little bit about how they're going to get through, you know, to their escape route. August is like, man, it sure would be nice if we could avoid confronting the soldiers somehow. And then if Kaurin's alive, she'll chime in and say, hey, listen, I can fly you with my Pegasus that I just got back. I can fly you over the wall. And basically, we can get out of here without even having to fight any of the soldiers. Um, And then August is like, yeah, all right, that seems like a good idea. And let's do that. But we should also, you know, if we decide to, I guess we can visit the castle town and see if that, uh, if that's worth doing. So it's presented as being like the, the, the ideal path is like flying over the wall with Karin. And then if you want to, you can, you know, take the opportunity to get some items from the village. I hate the fact that it's presented this way because this map is really good and I want to like it. but. It is so, so easy and actually encouraged for you to just cheese this map and have Karin fly people over the wall, which is incredibly boring. I played it that way the first time that I played this map, and it was so boring that this was like down there for me with chapter 5, 4X, and 4 as being like one of the worst maps in the game or even the series because... They encourage you to play this map in the most boring way possible. And the village is presented as kind of like an optional, like, if you want to try this bonus. So I don't know why they did it like that, because it's so much more interesting to actually, like, go into the town, have to fight the enemies. Uh, At some point, reinforcements are going to come from the castle and, you know, you have to fight them off. or run fast enough to escape from them. And then, as I mentioned last chapter, if you wait too long, Galsus will come out and start fighting you. And Galsus is, uh, is something. So I don't, you know, you definitely don't want to stick around for too long. And that way of playing the map is so much more interesting and is actually a lot of fun. I like this map, but because they present it to you in this way of like, the optimal solution is to do the most boring possible you know, strategy, I have to dock some points for that because they didn't have to do it that way. If people wanted to cheese the map and they came to that conclusion on their own and they had a bad time with it, I feel like that's on them. But when the game suggests this idea to you and then you take it upon yourself to do it, to actually follow what the game is telling you and you have a shitty time because of it, that's the game's fault, I think. So um, it is definitely a fun map if you just ignore what the game tells you, basically, is what I'm trying to say. But yeah, the escape points are down in the south. 
And there are some villages or some houses in the village that you can go to for items. Or you could just make a beeline for the escape point. And either way, it's just kind of like whatever you want to do. Maybe you get some houses, but not all of them. Whatever it may be. After a few turns, we see uh, Galzis talking with Sias. Uh, Sias is a character who we haven't met yet, but he is going to be important later on in the story. Galzis and him are chatting about uh, something that has gone on. Galzis apparently has brought Sias some kind of, of woman. And Sias is like, I don't know, like, I, I can get her out of here and I can help her. Um, but it's going to be, you know, basically Galsis is asking Sias to help this woman escape. And Sias is agreeing to do so. Sias asks, like, why is he doing this? Who is this girl to you? And Galsis refuses to answer. So Sias drops the subject. The houses here actually have some really good loot. Um, first of all, one of them gives you a master seal, our first master seal. This is like the promotion item that you use in this game. Unlike in GBA games, uh, you use one promotion item for every class in the game. Whereas in later games, it is uh, it is differentiated by... Well, actually, it's really only the GBA games that differentiate it by class. Whereas in like like the DS games, the 3DS games, and then three houses, it's all the same process no matter what your class is. So I can tell you that that is going straight to Asbel, but we'll get there later. There's a rapier, pure water, which I mentioned is not only plus seven resistance, but plus seven magic in this game because they're the same stat. Our first skill manual uh, for Paragon, skill manuals are exactly what they sound like. If you use them, uh, you will get that skill on that character. So if you want to give someone Paragon, you can. I believe it does stack with, oh, it definitely stacks with like Paragon mode. So whoever uses that scroll or whoever has Paragon at base will have, you know, plus or times four experience, which is crazy. One of the houses gives you a scroll, the Ode scroll, uh, which is always nice. We want more of those. And then the last house gives you a recruitable character named Hicks. Hicks is in a very similar situation to Dawson, where one of his family members was the... Oh, by the way, these are all the rewards that you get for rescuing the kids in Chapter 4. I should mention that. Or 4X, I should say. One of those houses is home to Hicks, who is the, I think, the dad or the older sibling of one of the kids that you saved. And very much like Dawson, he decides that since you helped out his kid, he's going to help you and joins up with you. Character-wise, you know, same deal as Dalson, just, you know, regular guy, wants to help out, feels grateful to Leaf for what he did, and wants to do the right thing. Pretty solid stuff. As a unit, he's basically just worse Brighton. He's in the same class, and that's not to say that you can't use two people of the same class. Like, just because one person is worse than the other one doesn't mean that you can never use the first one. But Brighton is already kind of pushing it in terms of what is, like, a good unit. And then Hicks just has bad, worse bases, I think worse growth rates. And it's just really bad overall. I've never used him, I don't think. Maybe I have. I don't remember. But he's he's shitty. <laughs> he's definitely not worth using. Uh, really, just use... use If you want to use an Axe Knight, use Brighton. And then even then, like, you probably don't want to use Brighton anyway. <laughs> Brighton's not that good either. It is nice to actually have our mounts back because, you know, Karin's on her horse again, 
and so are or on her Pegasus, and so are Fergus and Brighton and Nana, and I think that's it. And then obviously Hicks you get in this map. So that's pretty much it for this map. Uh, it's fun, but it's straightforward. If you choose to go through the castle town, you have to fight off some enemies. But if you're quick enough, you'll be able to make it out long before uh, the enemies who've come out of the castle are able to catch up with you. And long, long before Galasis shows up. So you can get everyone out, and then Leaf will escape. And that's the end of the chapter. We see a cutscene where Raedric is talking with one of his lackeys and gives us some exposition about Galsus. We find out as the audience that the person that Galsus was helping to escape was Marita, uh, because they say that, you know, Marita's gone missing, Galsus was the last person to be around her, so we should investigate him. Raedric reveals that Galsus is actually Shannon's cousin, Shannon from FE4. The person he's talking to is, like, flabbergasted by this, and is like, hey, if you knew this, why in the world would you have him on as a sellsword? Isn't he, aren't you worried that he's going to betray us and help, you know, help his family? And we get some lore about how uh, Galsus's family was from Rivo, which is the territory of Isaac that instigated, we don't find out about this here. I don't, and I could be wrong, but just based on the context, I think it's safe to assume that Rivo is the territory of Isaac that originally was manipulated by Manfroy into invading Darna, which is what instigated and set off the entire conflict of FE4 to begin with. So they were the initiators, basically, of the plot of FE4. As a result, the king of Isaac, Aira's dad and, you know, Shannon's grandfather, whatever, killed Galsus's dad for treachery or whatever it is. So Galsus kind of has like a grudge against Shannon, or at least Raedric seems to think that he won't help out Shannon if it comes down to it. So he decides that Galsus is still valuable enough to be put to good use in his army. And Raedric kind of puts it together why Galsus would want to help Marita. He doesn't make us privy to it, but he kind of hints at it um, and implies that they may be related because Marita and Galsus had the same, like, brand on their backs so they're probably both connected by blood to the ode lineage that sort of thing but basically says you know like galsus is too valuable to us to risk losing him so don't do anything unless i say it's okay and that's where the chapter ends a lot goes on in this section of the game um, most notably obviously avel being turned to stone is huge and is the catalyst for a lot of leaf's growth and motivation to take back you know, his territory from uh, the Empire is revenge against the Empire for what they did to Evel. There's some stuff going on with Sed and the Magi group that's going to come back up later. And then also everything going on with Galsas and Merida. And it it's narratively, this section of chapters is incredible. And and as much as I don't like playing through these maps, I do think this is this is a great part of the story. I think that so much goes on here that helps define and and lay out the groundwork for the rest of the game going forward. Obviously, the Gal the not the Galsus, the Avel thing being the standout example. Leaf's exchange with August at the beginning of chapter six is just so good and really demonstrates that while Leaf is 
confident and you know he's he had resolved himself before now to fight back against the empire but this really set in stone like yes this is what i want to do and i'm going to put everything i have into fighting back against this group that took avel away from me but also shows a little bit of naivete and shows that he still has a long way to go before he's ready to fully assume the the leadership role and this is a theme that's going to pop back up over the course of the game is that um, Leaf is certainly not perfect um, and and has a lot to learn before he becomes a truly great leader. But yeah, overall, Manster, well, we're not done with Manster yet. We still have one chapter left in Manster, but we're close to being done and we're out of the woods in terms of like bad maps, in my opinion. I think chapter seven is okay. But overall, really, really good narrative set of maps. Oh, and I also forgot about the the stuff with Karin and Sed. That's pretty cool. So, overall, really good story section of the game. And I hope it continues. This game has a great story from what I remember. So, I hope that it, uh, it keeps up the good work in that regard. But the gameplay just wasn't doing it for me. But, again, we're, uh, we're, out of, we're getting out of there. We're, we're getting into the mid-game, which is... And there's a few more maps in this like next bit that I don't like, but once we hit chapter like 13 through 20, it's pretty good. Pretty good for the most part, I think. In terms of news, not a lot going on outside of Heroes since the last episode came out. A few days, I want to say like two or three days after I put out that last episode, more merch news came out. A group by the name of Super Groupies is putting out Three Houses merchandise. And as far as I know, it's still all available. You can still get it, no problem. It's all really expensive for my tastes. Like, they're selling coats and watches for $200 plus, which I get is not, like, crazy expensive for high-end stuff, like especially watches. There are watches. I just found out about this. There are watches. Obviously, there's a stereotype about watches being expensive. But I had no idea how expensive some of these got. I saw one that was priced around half a million dollars, which is, to me, the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen in my life. That's crazy that a, a wristwatch could go for half a million dollars. But I guess, you know, it is like a status symbol. So I say $200 watch, and I'm sure a bunch of you are like, that's nothing. And it is, you're right. It's been, and even like coats and stuff go for way more than that. But I don't know, man. I just want some nice Fire Emblem merchandise that's not going to make me go bankrupt. It's it's crazy. But if you have the money, uh, absolutely. Some of this stuff looks really nice. I don't really, I'm not like enough of a watch guy or a coat guy to know if these are high quality just based on the pictures. But they seem nice. You know, it's a uh, nice aesthetic. I especially like the look of the watches. So if you have a, a spare $200 to spend, maybe you won the lottery, I don't know, then go and buy those those you know those watches. They're cool. And that's it as far as news goes. In my life, I've been playing a lot of games. I've been getting further in Trails in the Sky second chapter, which is a lot of fun, although I haven't played in a few days, so maybe I should get back into that. I've been continuing my Nuzlocks. I've... Is that really it? I guess so. It hasn't been that long since I put out the last episode. But then the other thing I've been doing is watching Hajime no Ippo, 
which is like an older boxing anime. Pretty good. Um, I've been enjoying it so far. I'm only like 10 episodes in, so pretty early on. And I know there's like, I don't know how many there are in the other seasons, but I know just in season one alone, there's 75 episodes. And there's, you know, there's probably a comparable number in later seasons. So that's going to be a long one, I think. I might not finish all the way, but I want to get at least through season one. It's pretty fun. Pretty cool. I'm enjoying it so far. That's going to be it from me, I think. I hope you all have a nice rest of your day. And I think that's it. So I'll see you all next time. Bye-bye. Thank you.